This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good morning. My name is Richard Kai, and I'm the president and CEO of the Institute of the Americas located on the UC San Diego campus in La Jolla, California. Established in 1981, the Institute of the Americas is an independent, inter-American-focused institution devoted to encouraging the economic and social reform across the Western Hemisphere, enhancing private sector collaboration and communication to strengthen political and economic relations between Latin America, the Caribbean, the United States, and Canada. Given the institution's organizational mission, I'm pleased to welcome you today to our virtual forum entitled Build Back Better Together, Canada and the United States, being organized in honor of Canada Day, which will be in a few days on July 1st. Before we begin, I wanna thank our, our supporter, the Burnham Foundation, and our program partners, the UCLA Canadian Studies Program, the Maple, the Maple Business Council of Southern California, the California Chamber of Commerce, and NASCO. I also want to thank our media partner, the University of California Television, that will be recording and rebroadcasting today's program on their channel. Today, we have an impressive lineup of speakers and panelists from both Canada and the United States. To lead off our forum, it gives me great pleasure to introduce um, Arwen Woodmere um, Babic, the Council for P Political, Economic, and Cultural Affairs at the, cons at the Consulate um, General of Canada in Los Angeles. It's Arwen's job to promote and protect Canada's interests in the Southwest United States. Arwen's team leads on political, economic, cultural, environmental, energy, and climate, as well as security and defense and human rights related issues. She's also got a portfolio focusing on media engagement, diversity, equity, and inclusion for the council. So she's got a broad range of responsibilities and very active um, in Southern California. Arwen has worked in the Federal Public Service of Canada for over 20 years. The last 12 has been focused as a diplomat working at the um, Embassy of Canada in Mexico, where she served as the Economic Affairs Counselor. So Arwen comes with a great deal of experience and perspective, not just on Canadian foreign policy, but on the North American relationship with the United States, Canada, and Mexico. At this time, I would like to welcome Arwen to our virtual stage. Arwen, take it away. Thank you so much, Richard, for your kind words. Good morning, everyone. Our mission, including our consulate based in San Diego, are delighted to have partnered with the Institute of the Americas on today's exciting program. As the first Canadian official speaking today, it's my honor to do the land acknowledgement. I'm speaking to you from the traditional lands of the Tongva Nation here in Los Angeles. It's a solemn time in Canada with the recent discoveries of the unmarked graves of hundreds of children who died while in the Indian residential school system in Canada. Now is the time for reflection, reckoning and real reconciliation in Canada and we are committed to doing so. Our esteemed lineup of Canadian and US speakers this morning will highlight the real ways the United States and Canada can, in the words of Prime Minister Trudeau and President Biden, work to revitalize and expand our historic alliance and steadfast friendship to overcome the daunting challenges of today and realize the full potential of the relationship into the future via the roadmap for renewed US-Canada partnership. And we will hear a lot about that today. It is my great honor and pleasure to introduce one of those speakers, my boss, Consul General of Canada in Los Angeles, Zabe Sheikh. Zabe began his mandate as Consul General in December 
2018. He is the Government of Canada's Senior Representative in, in Southern California, Arizona, and Nevada. He came to this posting after an extensive career in media and entertainment industries, having worked as an actor and producer in theater, film, and television. From 2014 until his appointment in 2018, our Consul General was the Film Commissioner and Director of Entertainment Industries for the City of Toronto. In his two and a half years as Head of Mission, he has spearheaded numerous working groups and trailblazing initiatives across our North American network on issues ranging from climate change and defense to mental health awareness and diversity, equity, and inclusion. Without further ado, over to you, Zabe. Thanks so much, Arwen. Really appreciate that introduction and thank you, Richard. Um, as Arwen mentioned, I've had the distinct honor of serving as the head of mission, as it's called, or the Consul General at the Consulate General of Canada in Los Angeles and in San Diego for over two years now, although, uh, much of those two years, as we all know and have experienced, have been an unprecedented time together. Uh, and that's something that we're going to be talking about today. It's a testament to the strength of our enduring partnership that we've been able to take these exceptional actions to support our citizens in both countries, limit the spread of the virus, and ensure the safety and security of our shared border while keeping our economies going throughout the pandemic and, of course, as we move into the recovery phase. To elaborate on this, uh, I get the uh, distinct honor to introduce someone amazing as well. It's my pleasure to introduce our Deputy Head of Mission in the United States, Ms. Catherine Baird. I call her DHOM, and that's Deputy Head of Mission, but she's also the Deputy Ambassador. Uh, Catherine was nominated to this posting in June 2020. Prior to her nomination, Ms. Baird has served as Minister for Congressional Public and Intergovernmental Relations at the Embassy of Canada in Washington, D.C. from 2013 and onward. Ms. Baird joined Global Affairs Canada in 2011 as the Senior Executive Advisor to the De Deputy Minister of Foreign Affairs. The Deputy Head of Mission has served 30 plus years in the public service in a number of capacities, including at the Parliament of Canada, Department of National Defence, Department of Justice, and Privy Council Office. Catherine, I'm very honoured. I know we all are honoured to have you address the audience today. As we weren't able to get you out of the humidity and thunderstorms <laughs> on the horizon in DC, at least we have you virtually here with us in Los Angeles and San Diego, and we're looking forward to having you here in person when travel is more readily available for us all. So, Catherine, thank you. Without further ado, over to you at the virtual stage. Merci beaucoup, Zabe. C'est un réel plaisir d'être avec vous ce matin. Thank you, Zabe. It's such a pleasure to be with you today to help kick off this forum. I'd also like to say thank you to Richard Kai at the Institute of the Americas for inviting me to speak with you today. My thanks as well to the Maple Business Council, the UCLA Canadian Studies Program, the California Chamber of Commerce, and UCTV for their part in organizing this important discussion. And I don't want to start by appearing ungrateful, but it does seem a little unfair that in the year I'm part of an event in Southern California, we're all attending virtually, obviously for very good reasons. Um, and on that point, just how great is it that there's some light appearing at the end of the COVID tunnel? Despite joining you from across the country here in humid Washington, D.C., I am well aware of the critical role trade plays in Canada's relationship with the US and Southern California. 
I want to start by saying a few words about that. I'm not sure how many of you know this, but Canada is one of the top foreign investors and trading partners for Southern California. The impact of partnerships with Canadian firms to the local economy is substantial, contributing to over 533,000 jobs in the region. In San Diego County specifically, the Canadian footprint is significant. How significant? Well, here are some stats. Almost 50,000 jobs in San Diego County depend on trade and investment with Canada. Close to 5,000 people are employed at 168 Canadian-owned businesses across San Diego County, familiar businesses like Stantec, City National Bank, Aldo, Colliers International, and Bombardier Transportation Holdings, to name a few. And then there are perhaps less familiar companies that are making a real difference in your community, like FredSense, a Calgary-based women and LGBTQ-led biotechnology firm developing tools for real-time water analysis. Also, there's Phoenix Molecular Designs, another women-led Canadian biotech company which hit a major milestone in 2019 when it received FDA clearance to move its breast cancer fighting drug into a phase one, 1B clinical trial. And of course, there are all of the companies that export goods and services to Canada. 1.7 billion in goods and 914 million in services are exported by San Diego County to Canada annually. Now those are a lot of numbers to keep straight and don't worry, I will not uh, quiz you following my remarks but I do think it's important to highlight the strong foundation upon which the trade relationship is built and what we have put in place on which we can build moving forward. Of course, a fundamental part of the Canada-US Trade Foundation is our newly modernized USMCA or the new NAFTA, which came into force almost exactly a year ago on July 1st, 2020. But before we talk about the future and all of its opportunities and possibilities, I'd like to take a moment to reflect on the last 16 months or so and the impacts on our bilateral trade relationship. By now, it is an understatement to say that we've experienced a period of significant instability, uncertainty, loss, and change in the United States, in Canada, and across the globe. On a parochial note, it's hard for me to believe it was back in March 2020 that my boss, Kirsten Hillman, was appointed as Canada's ambassador to the United States, the first woman to hold this role. Not long after, in the same month, as the impact of the pandemic was becoming more fully understood, Canada and the United States moved to restrict all non-essential travel along the Canada-US border. It really was an extraordinary time. As a reminder, this is a border that under normal circumstances sees over 400,000 crossings a day. It's a border that supports about 2 billion USD in goods and services trade between our two countries every day, 2 billion. Roughly three quarters of Canada's exports go to the United States. The goal of this joint Canada-US decision was to suspend all non-essential border crossings for public health and safety reasons while minimizing the impacts on our economies. 
Therefore, we continued to allow the movement of essential workers and the transport of goods for manufacturers and, of course, food and medical supplies. The data shows that the restrictions achieved the goals they set out to achieve. Following the sharp declines in trade flows at the onset of the pandemic, our efforts in co-managing the border meant that by December 2020, bilateral trade flows were back to 95% of pre-pandemic levels. As our two countries continue to focus our efforts on fighting the pandemic and turning our minds to an eventual easing of border measures, things are looking even better on the trade front. Through the first quarter of 2021, both U.S. exports and U.S. imports of goods and services from Canada exceeded the levels in the same period of 2020. In fact, U.S. exports of goods to Canada hit 28 billion in March alone, the highest level seen since October 2014. Because we have an almost perfectly reciprocal trading relationship, we're happy to report that the exact same thing can be said about US imports from Canada. It's worth noting that throughout these last 15 months, we have had very good cooperation with both the previous and current administrations in making thoughtful and collaborative decisions about our shared border. More recently, the Prime Minister and the President agreed to take a coordinated approach based on science and public health criteria when considering measures to ease Canada-US border restrictions, a commitment that was reiterated recently when they spoke at the G7. Consistent with that approach, Ambassador Hillman and I and others at our embassy and in Ottawa and elsewhere are in regular contact with our US colleagues about the border. There are active and ongoing high-level discussions on these issues, and we are identifying together the conditions under which restrictions may be eased safely and sustainably. Cooperation, and in particular COVID cooperation, has also served as an important component of our early work with the Biden administration. Beginning on Inauguration Day, the embassy began receiving calls from senior members within the new administration, seeking to establish contact both with Ambassador Hillman and with Canadian ministers and senior government officials. It marked a strong and substantive start to the relationship. By leveraging our, our positive relationship with President Biden, which started during his tenure as vice president, we are reinvigorating the Canada-US relationship. This was certainly the focus back in February when President Biden and Prime Minister Trudeau met for the first time, virtually of course, the president's first bilateral meeting with a foreign counterpart since taking office. As a result of that meeting, the leaders announced an ambitious roadmap for a renewed US-Canada partnership, which outlines a number of concrete actions for Canada-US collaboration in the coming years. And I say ambitious because we think of it as quite a remarkable document and a huge achievement. Oftentimes, leaders' statements can be high level, a bit brief, maybe a little vague, but this is a substantive meaty, several pages long document, a big bilateral to-do list, if you will, encompassing a number of priorities with clear objectives. 
I think one of the reasons we were able to articulate such a substantive roadmap is that there is enormous alignment between the Biden administration and the government of Canada from a policy perspective. For both our countries, not surprisingly, the top priority is ending the COVID-19 pandemic and focusing on economic recovery, knowing that the two priorities are inextricably linked. The reality is that economic recovery in Canada and in the United States will be faster, stronger, and more enduring if we move forward together. This is, in, this is reflected in the roadmap's commitment to strengthen Canada-US supply chain security and reinforce our already interconnected industries, while also looking ahead to new areas for manufacturing that simultaneously support our climate and our energy objectives. With respect to our energy objectives and in recognition of how integrated our energy needs and infrastructure are, we will also continue to collaborate on critical minerals, battery development and production, and energy governance. On critical minerals, our joint action plan is an opportunity to promote responsible mineral resource development and related value-added economic activity while addressing key supply chain vulnerabilities. On climate change, an issue that Californians experience in a very real way every day, Canada and the US are seizing opportunities created by the roadmap to accelerate our climate ambitions and work together internationally. In April of this year, the United States hosted an ambitious high-level climate summit at which both Canada and the United States announced new emissions reduction targets. As part of our commitment under the Paris Agreement, Canada will reduce our emissions by 40 to 45% below 2005 levels by 2030. Canada and the United States are now working together in the lead up to COP26 in November to encourage other countries to take similarly ambitious steps. At the recent G7 meeting in Cornwall, the Prime Minister also announced a doubling of Canada's climate finance from 2.65 billion in 2015 to 5.3 billion over five years, including increased support for adaptation, as well as for nature and nature-based solutions. We are also working together bilaterally to make these global commitments a reality. In March, Canada and the United States launched a high-level ministerial dialogue on climate ambition to better align policies and regulations between our two countries and address greenhouse gas emissions and their impacts, all while stimulating economic growth, creating jobs, and improving public health. Through this dialogue, we are also strengthening our cooperation on policies and investments to manage land carbon sinks like forests more effectively and improve their resilience to climate impacts, including wildfires and floods. The dialogue builds upon our cooperation in other areas. In 2019, Environment and Climate Change Canada signed a memorandum of understanding with California Air Resources Board to strengthen cooperation on greenhouse gas emissions reductions. 
Since 1966, when it established the first tailpipe emission standards in the United States, California has led the way in regulating vehicle emissions. As we continue to improve fuel economy and transition to zero emission vehicles, Canada will work to align federal light duty vehicle regulations with the most stringent performance standards in North America post 2025, whether at the US federal or state level. In other environmental news, Canada and the United States have committed to conserving 30% of lands and water by 2030 and have made policy and financial commitments in that regard. For Canada, this includes continued investments of $3.2 billion to the nature legacy, which includes efforts to collaborate with indigenous and sub-federal partners. And just this past week, Energy Secretary Granholm and Canada's Minister of Natural Resources, Seamus O'Regan, renewed a mem memorandum of understanding on energy cooperation between our two countries, which reaffirms our partnership as we advance our shared priority of a people-centered clean energy transition that leaves no one behind. Of interest to this audience, I'd note that energy trade between Canada and California is worth over 1 billion annually and includes renewable energy exports from British Columbia that contribute to California's emissions reductions objectives. Our bilateral and global commitments in the roadmap also include cooperation in the areas of security and defense, including continental defense, cybersecurity, cross-border crime, and the Arctic. From a security and economic standpoint, Canada and the United States are also looking at ways to align our approaches on China, including how we deal with China's coercive and unfair economic practices national security challenges, and human rights abuses. President Biden has said he wants to work closely with traditional allies, and he wants the US to re-engage in multilateral organizations, including the World Trade Organization, the UN, the G7 and G20, and NATO. A very recent example of this commitment to engaging with allies was at the G7 summit, where Canada and the United States joined their G7 counterparts to commit to a shared agenda for global action to build back better. As part of that agenda, the Prime Minister confirmed Canada's commitment of 100 million doses as part of the overall G7 commitment to international dose sharing of COVID-19 vaccines. And as I said at the outset, fighting COVID and focusing on economic recovery efforts are inextricably linked. As I think you can see from all of these commitments, there is a real sense of alignment and opportunity between our two countries. This alignment can also be seen in our shared determination to combat systemic racism and discrimination and to advance diversity and inclusion in our societies, including from an economic prosperity standpoint. In Canada, June marks National Indigenous History Month, an important opportunity to learn about, appreciate, and acknowledge the contributions that First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people have made in shaping our country. This year, National Indigenous History Month 
is taking place at a time of great sadness in our country following the discovery of the remains of children near former residential schools. This month is dedicated to the missing children, the families left behind, and the survivors of residential schools. The mistreatment of Indigenous children at residential schools is a tragedy, the impacts of which are still felt today. Over decades, thousands of Indigenous children were taken from their families and communities. Prime Minister Trudeau has acknowledged that these findings are part of a larger tragedy and a shameful reminder of the systemic racism, discrimination, and injustice that Indigenous peoples have faced and continue to face in Canada. He is asking us as a country to acknowledge this truth, learn from our past, and walk the shared path of reconciliation so we can build a better future. While each of our countries has different histories and difficult truths to face, we also have a unique opportunity to walk the path together as we so often do as neighbors. Learning from each other, sharing best practices and the promotion of diversity and inclusion will help us move in the right direction. It will also ensure a more equitable and sustainable economic recovery. Which brings me back to the broader issue of economic recovery within the theme of this webinar. It's fair to say our countries and our leaders also have a very similar vision for economic recovery. It is one focused on good paying and secure jobs and ensuring that the benefits of economic growth are more accessible and shared more widely. Similar to what is happening here in the United States, in Canada, the COVID-19 recession has been the steepest and fastest economic contraction since the Great Depression. It has disproportionately affected low-wage workers, young people, women, and racialized Canadians. For businesses, it has been a two-speed recession, with some finding ways to prosper and grow, but many businesses, especially small businesses, fighting to survive. The pandemic has also caused real hardship for the small business community. In Canada, our most recent budget articulates an approach and a series of concrete actions to ensure a sustainable economic recovery. Both our governments have made it clear that the path to economic recovery is entirely dependent on the trajectory of the virus. Given that, first and foremost, Budget 2021 is focused on finishing the fight against COVID-19. Canada's top priority remains protecting Canadians' health and safety. I am happy to report that the vaccine rollout is well underway across Canada, with federal government support in every province and territory, and Canadians enthusiastically rolling up their sleeves to do their part, and yes, that pun was very much intended. Budget 2021 is also about healing the wounds left by the COVID-19 recession. It's about creating more jobs and prosperity for Canadians in the days and decades to come. It makes historic investments to address the specific wounds of the COVID-19 recession, put people first, create jobs, grow the middle class, 
set businesses on a track for long-term growth and ensure that Canada's future will be healthier, more equitable, greener, and more prosperous. The hallmark of Canada's budget is a transformative investment to build a Canada-wide early learning and childcare system, an initiative that is very much part of building back better and a shared roadmap commitment. This is a plan to drive economic growth, increase women's participation in the workforce, and offer each child in Canada the best start in life. Our budget is also a plan for a green recovery that fights climate change. It helps more than 200,000 Canadians make their homes greener, builds a net zero economy by investing in world leading technologies to make industry cleaner and reduce pollution, helps Canada reach its goal of conserving 25% of our lands and oceans by 2025, and creates good middle-class jobs in the green economy along the way. Canada's plan to spur job creation and support small business will create almost 500,000 new training and work opportunities, including 215,000 opportunities for youth. It will support businesses in our most affected sectors, such as tourism and arts and culture, and accelerate investment in digital transformation of small and medium-sized businesses. The government has committed to creating 1 million jobs by the end of this year. When it comes to our trade relationship and economic recovery, we will continue to work with the United States to identify and take advantage of emerging opportunities. We also know we have to be realistic and we have to be strategic. If the pandemic has taught us anything, it's that while we might need to become a bit more self-reliant in some areas, in this interconnected world, nobody can truly go it alone. We need to resist the inclination to look inward at the expense of important trade and security relationships. And certainly, Canada is committed to working with our partners and allies on the post-COVID recovery. Thanks to the relationships we have built over the past 25 years under NAFTA, and now under the USMCA, we can tackle these issues with a bilateral or North American approach, leveraging our respective strengths and robust cross-border supply chains in support of this recovery. Canada and the United States have obvious strengths as reliable partners. We have similar economic structures, comparable environmental policies, a shared vision for greening government and greening infrastructure, a shared industrial base, and a shared commitment to diversity, equity, and justice. Regarding the president's Building Back Better agenda and with respect to infrastructure, which we know is a priority for this administration, we recognize the US interest in supporting American workers and jobs. On that, we would simply point out that with respect to integrated cross-border Canada-US supply chains, imposing domestic content requirements can have the opposite effect. They can negatively affect American workers and jobs and the timelines and costs associated with important infrastructure projects. Let's not forget, we don't just sell things to each other, we build things together. 
Canadian building and construction materials are some of the greenest in the world. Using Canada-US supply chains to build infrastructure means lower emissions associated with both production and transportation. Our countries also have robust labor regimes. Many of our workers are represented by the same unions and their leaders are keen to find a pragmatic way forward that protects workers and supply chains on both sides of the border. As we move forward, similar to how we've worked together during previous economic downturns in the interest of both our countries, it's critical that we work together again in support of our economic recovery efforts. This will ensure that our economic recoveries deliver on the promises of stimulating our economies and getting our citizens, all our citizens, back to work. To conclude, it should be fairly clear by now that the Prime Minister and the President share a similar vision when it comes to building back better, one that is sustainable, inclusive, and helps strengthen the middle class. Despite global challenges in the face of uncertainty and instability, Canada's relationship with the United States endures. It is resilient, interdependent, and multifaceted. It is precisely because of this interdependence that decisions on one side of the border often impact those on the other side. We need to remain vigilant while seizing new opportunities. Whether in relation to economic recovery, supply chain security, fighting climate change, or the many other areas identified in the roadmap, there are many new opportunities for Canada and the United States to pursue in the years ahead. Our shared commitment to an economic recovery must include and be sensitive to the unique impacts on communities that are hurting the most. Opportunities that are more equitably distributed are a core feature of what better will look like as we rebuild. I'll end by noting that, as has been noted, July 1st is Canada Day. As we contemplate our reconciliation efforts and our relationship with Indigenous peoples, as the Prime Minister has said, this Canada Day will be a time of reflection on what we've achieved as a country, but also on what more we have to do. As friends and neighbors, reliable trading partners and trusted allies, Canada and the United States have worked together over many years and accomplished much. We still have so much to do together and many opportunities to seize. It's a privilege for me to have been given this opportunity to share some of the highlights of this renewed partnership. Thank you very much for having me today and for including Canada as part of this webinar series. Thank you. Thank you, Catherine, for that uh, wonderful um, keynote address that gave us a really good perspective on the robust and multifaceted relationship that the United States and Canada have on um, not just economics and trade, but also on the environment, on national security issues, on human rights, um, climate change. And I was pleased to hear you speak about our work in nature-based solutions and the roadmap um, uh, that uh, President Biden and um, Prime Minister Trudeau um, 
uh, agreed upon in February. Thank you so much for your remarks. I think you gave us a great um, introduction to our current uh, panel, which is going to be focusing on the trade investment um, relationship between the two countries. I'm filling in today um, for David Weaver, who is the Institute's Chairman Emeritus. Um, he was going to be the moderator, um, but he fell ill and asked me to step in. David is a Canadian-American and a native of uh, Manitoba. So he was very much looking forward to being part of this um, panel discussion, so he will be missed. Um, today we have a distinguished um, group of experts that will speak about the U.S. Tra um, trade and investment uh, relationship with Canada, and we'll talk about it from many different vantage points. At this point, it gives me great pleasure to introduce um, our panelists. Um, our first uh, panelist is Ian Saunders. He's the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Western Hemisphere and Global Markets at the U.S. Department of Commerce. Prior to his current appointment, Ian served as the Assistant Commissioner for International Affairs at the U.S. Customs and Border Protection, CBP, where he led the coordination and support for all CBP foreign initiatives, programs, and activities, as well as development and execution of the, of the agency's international strategies. So he's got a very unique perspective on the, um, on the bilateral relationship, not just from a trade and commerce front, but also from the standpoint of Homeland Security. Um, following Ian, um, we have Eric Miller, who's the Global Fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center Canada Institute. He's also president of the um, Redow um, Atomic Strategy Group, a consultancy firm that works with private and public sector clients in North America, Asia, and Latin America, focusing on trade and business matters. He's currently an external on the external advisory committee um, for international policy to Canada's um, deputy minister of international trade. Uh, Eric previously served as the vice president for um, North American security um, um, and. Um, on cybersecurity and business at the Council of uh, the Business Council for Canada, and um, this organization represents CEOs from some of the largest companies uh, in Canada. Before joining the council in 2013, um, uh, Mr. Miller was also um, representing Canada in their Department of Industry and um, sorry, and um, at the Canadian sorry the Department of Industry at the Canadian Embassy in um, in Washington. And he holds a master's degree from Carleton University, um, as well as a diploma from the um, Bologna Center um, at Johns Hopkins uh, School for International Studies. Um, so our, after um, Eric, we will have Colin um, Robinson, who is the Vice President Fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Colin is a former diplomat, um, and he is a, he's a regular with a global podcast um, and uh, shares a lot of his perspectives on his foreign service experience. Um, he also is the first head of the um, advocate secretariat for them and, and also the minister um, at the Canadian Embassy in Washington um, and was formerly the Consul General of Los Angeles as well as the Consul in, in Hong Kong and uh, New York at the UN um, and their Consul General. Finally, we have Kirst, um, Christine um, Stewart, who is the head uh, shape of shaping the future for media, entertainment, and innovation, and a member of the executive committee of the World Economic Forum. Christina spent a groundbreaking career working globally at the intersection of media and technology. As VP of North American um, 
media for Twitter in New York. She's led um, a team across the United States working to develop partnerships in news, entertainment, government, and sports. Christine transitioned to her role as, um, after she founded and built Twitter's fastest growing um, global ad sales office, which was located in Toronto. Before moving to Twitter, Christine was the head of Canada's national broadcaster, the CBC, responsible for television, radio, and digital. Christine currently resides in Los Angeles. So at this time, I'd like to kick things off with Ian. Take it away. Uh, hello, Richard, and thank you very much for that kind introduction. Certainly, I uh, wish David the best um, today. And really want to thank the Institute of the Americas for the invitation to speak today about the U.S.-Canada trade and investment relationship. The Institute has been a welcome partner in advancing North American competitiveness and innovation with the Department of Commerce in previous years. The California Chamber of Commerce and Maple Business Council have also done their part to advance the U.S.-Canada and North American relationship more broadly. I'm delighted to have the opportunity to participate in the event today to talk about the ways the administration and the department are working with Canada to build back better. I would also like to take a moment to acknowledge the other distinguished speakers on the panel who are good friends of the United States and Canada and strong advocates of the bilateral relationship. Before I launch into the, the substance of, of, the, of our topic for today, I want to briefly provide an overview of the Department of Commerce's role in trade for those participants who may not be familiar. The Department of Commerce plays a critical role in facilitating international trade and promoting exports, both of which are key components of this administration's economic and national security agenda. The International Trade Administration, or ITA, the bureau of which I'm a part, is the portion of commerce uh, charged with creating prosperity by strengthening the international competitiveness of U.S. industry, promoting trade and investment, and ensuring fair trade and compliance with trade laws and agreements. ITA's global footprint consists of 100 U.S.-based export assistance centers. We also have commercial service offices in more than 70 countries around the world and headquarters staff in Washington, D.C., consisting of country and industry experts. As Deputy Assistant Secretary for the Western Hemisphere, I lead a dynamic team of roughly 200 employees working across 14 countries, including 22 staff in Canada and 25 staff in Commerce headquarters here in Washington. ITA accomplishes its mission in three ways. First, we assist U.S. companies in gaining access to markets around the world. Second, we facilitate discussions with government decision makers and policy influencers. Thirdly, we help, in, we help U.S. businesses succeed in trade through customized solutions. Last year alone, ITA assisted more than 31,000 U.S. companies in accessing new opportunities in international markets and overcoming a wide range of trade barriers. In addition to our team in Canada and in headquarters, we have local export assistance centers, as I mentioned before, and there are several UZACs across Southern California, including in San Diego, West Los Angeles, downtown Los Angeles, Irvine, and Ontario. Matt Anderson, who directs the San Diego UZAC and his team are exceptional. And I encourage those in attendance to connect with our ITA experts about trade and investment opportunities with Canada. The U.S.-Canada relationship is one of enduring strength, built on broad and deep ties between our peoples, based on shared values, extensive trade, and strategic global cooperation. I'd like to offer now a sense of the size and scope of this connection, if I can. Our bilateral trade investment relationship, the world's largest and most comprehensive, supports millions of jobs on both sides of the border. 
Our highly integrated supply chains are the basis for daily two-way trade in goods and, service, goods and services that value nearly $1.7 billion. Canada is by far the largest market for U.S. merchandise exports overall, totaling $255 billion in 2020, and is the top export market for roughly 30 individual U.S. states. In California, Canada is the second largest export market after Mexico, accounting for 10% of all exports. The top traded goods between our two countries include transportation equipment, chemicals, oil and gas, machinery, computer and electronic products, and food, a very diverse range. Canada is the leading supplier of imported energy for the United States, and our electrical grids are closely connected. Cross-border investment between the U.S. and Canada is one of the largest bilateral investment relationships in the world, totaling $898 billion in 2019, and that set a new record. Canada is the second largest source of foreign investment in the United States, with an investment stock valued at $580 billion as of 2019, ahead of many other much larger G7 economies. Every year, there's approximately 20 to $70 billion in new investments between our two countries. Canadian companies have made investments in a broad range of sectors across the United States, but let me give you a few exciting new examples. Ontario, Canada-based Magna International, a global automotive supplier, announced in February that it plans to invest just over $70 million and create 304 jobs at its Magna Electric Vehicle Structures facility in St. Clair, Michigan. Quebec-based Lion Electric announced in May that it selected Joliet, Illinois, as the site for the company's first American-based electric vehicle production facility. This new facility will produce more than 10,000 vehicles per year and is expected to begin its operations in the fourth quarter of this calendar year. In February, Lion Electric also secured an order for its all-electric school buses from the Los Angeles Unified School District. Lion will provide support and training to the school district from its recently opened Experience Center in the region located in Alhambra, California. Having talked a bit about the real-world scale of the relationship, let me turn to some recent policy developments that speak to our forward direction. Canada is a strategic and important partner for the United States. Our cross-border ties will only help us build back better and speed up economic recovery. The Biden-Harris administration has already demonstrated its commitment to reinvigorate and prioritize our relationship by making Canada the first virtual meeting of the new administration on February 23rd. In addition, most cabinet members have held bilateral meetings with their Canadian counterparts, including our Secretary of Commerce, Gina Raimondo. As a part of the leaders meeting, President Biden and Prime Minister Trudeau launched the US-Canada Partnership Roadmap to address priority areas of mutual concern, including COVID-19, inclusive economic recovery, climate change and clean energy, security and defense, diversity and inclusion, and partnering on global issues. Secretary of Commerce Raimondo has met with two Canadian counterparts, the Canadian Minister of Innovation, Science and Economic Development, Francois Champagne, and Canadian Minister of Small Business, Export Promotion and International Trade, Mary Ng, to advance roadmap priorities such as the following. Supporting small and medium-sized enterprises, 
supporting minority and indigenous and women-owned businesses, leveraging the U.S.-Mexico-Canada Agreement, or USMCA, to ensure inclusive growth and recovery from the pandemic, strengthening North American supply chain security, and collaborating on critical minerals cooperation to target net zero industrial transformation, batteries for zero emissions vehicles, and renewable energy storage. Our governments are working together to allocate resources to support women, minority, and indigenous-owned businesses and small and medium-sized enterprises, as these are the backbone of our economy. For instance, we're connecting small business development centers and minority business development centers in the United States with their counterparts in Canada to ensure the sharing of networks and best practices. We also hosted a webinar with government experts from both sides of the border to educate SMEs on best practices for protecting their intellectual property. The supply chain disruptions we've seen during the pandemic have emphasized the importance of working to ensure resilient supply chains in strategic areas such as critical minerals. Our office coordinates collaboration under the U.S.-Canada Critical Minerals Action Plan on industry engagement working with companies to better understand the bilateral critical minerals landscape from mining to processing, downstream applications, and recycling. This mention of critical minerals leads me to another point, the administration's commitment to addressing supply chain security more broadly. On February 24th, the president signed an executive order directing a whole of government approach to assessing vulnerabilities in and strengthening the resilience of critical supply chains. On June 8th, the administration released the findings of the comprehensive 100-day supply chain assessments for four critical products, semiconductor manufacturing and advanced packaging, large capacity batteries like those for electric vehicles, critical minerals and materials, and pharmaceuticals and active pharmaceutical ingredients. The administration is taking immediate action to address vulnerabilities and strengthen resilience. The U.S. cannot address its supply chain vulnerabilities alone. Even as the United States makes investment to expand domestic production capacity for some critical products, we must work with allies and partners to secure supplies of critical goods that we will not make in sufficient quantities at home. We must work with America's allies and partners to strengthen our collective supply chain resilience while ensuring high standards for labor and environmental practices are upheld. And I could not end my remarks today without also mentioning the importance of the trilateral North American relationship. In just two days, we will celebrate the one-year anniversary of USMCA's entry into force. The USMCA resulted in significant updates to its predecessor, the North American Free Trade Agreement, improving market access for manufacturing and agricultural exports, as well as the inclusion of important new provisions in areas like digital trade, good regulatory practices, and small and medium-sized enterprises support. It also brought side agreements on labor and environmental protections into the core of the agreement with meaningful commitments and state-of-the-art cooperation and enforcement mechanisms. The USMCA commits us to a robust and inclusive North American economy that serves as a model globally for competitiveness while prioritizing the interest of workers and underserved communities. On May 18th, the first USMCA Free Trade Commission meeting took place. At that meeting, the parties recognized that trade policy should foster broad-based and equitable growth, spur innovation, 
protect our shared environment, and have a positive impact on people from all walks of life. To accomplish this, the United States, Mexico, and Canada recommitted to fully implementing, enforcing, and fulfilling the agreement's terms and high standards throughout the life of the USMCA. We in North America need to continue to work together to adopt policies that promote competitiveness, create jobs, encourage investment, and ensure that trade advances equity and opportunity for all stakeholders. Fully implementing the USMCA is a great step toward this objective and is in the long-term best interest of our citizens. The US Department of Commerce is a willing and committed partner to this, to this success. It's in the shared interest of the United States and Canada to revitalize and expand our historic alliance and steadfast friendship to overcome the daunting challenges that face us today and realize the full potential of the relationship into the future. Both the USMCA and the US-Canada Partnership Roadmap are excellent vehicles to ensure progress, and I'm pleased with the Department of Commerce's contribution to both. In closing, I want to thank you again for the opportunity to take part in this event and to be part of this panel. I'd like to wish everyone a happy Canada Day and U.S. Independence Day in the week ahead. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ivan. Um, Ian, it was, a, it was an excellent overview of the um, uh, bilateral trade and commerce relationship between the United States and Canada and the work that the Department of Commerce is doing. I appreciate those remarks. At this time, um, I would like to uh, bring on Colin Robertson, uh, who will speak about um, the U.S. Canadian trade and uh, investment um, relationship from a Canadian perspective. Colin, take it away. Thanks, Richard. Well, build back better is now a cliche. Uh, Trudeau used it on climate and then the pandemic. And of course, Biden has used it on climate and the pandemic. And then we saw at the G7, Boris Johnson using it with build back better world as an alternative to China's Belt and Road Initiative. So the first problem is definitional. What do we mean? I think the Biden administration wants to rebuild alliances, but the focus is on using executive and legislative authorities to improve the state of the domestic economy and society now has a higher priority today than any post-war, post-Cold War administration. But the US is not alone in wanting to build back better and introduce equity. Canada, of course, shares that given the rise of inequality and populism across most of the world's democratic nations. National champions in industrial policy are enjoying a renaissance on both sides of the Atlantic. In China, of course, they say business as usual because they've always directed how they want to have their national champions. In the Canada-US context, Build Back Better is part of the Canada-US roadmap as was referenced by Catherine and Arlen and uh, Zaif in their earlier remarks. Uh, and that's, of course, as they pointed out, to renew the Canada-US partnership. It's uh, second after COVID of the six baskets of priorities agreed to, as was pointed out by the Prime Minister and the President in February. So 126 days later, where are we? Well, there's lots of opportunity in this remarkably detailed roadmap. It really is impressive, as Catherine Baird pointed out. Based on a Canadian initiative, the Biden administration has made it their own. In the days after the summit, there was a flurry of uh, ministerial meetings environment, transport, defense, secretary, security, foreign affairs, as Ian pointed out, commerce is part of that, to come up with work plans. The key now is for Canadian leadership to move on the opportunity if we are to translate the shared vision into real progress. We really do have an opportunity with the roadmap 
to make some real gains in competitiveness that will serve the three countries. I say the three countries, but essentially it is a Canada-US work plan because if Mexico doesn't want to play, and there's no guarantee that AMLO seems somewhat reluctant about this, if you look at the US-Mexico blueprint compared to the Canadian, it's a pretty thin gruel compared to what we have with the United States. So my sense is we've got to get on with it. When Mexico gets a new government, they can join us. But if we don't act and move now, we risk losing the advantage as Biden wants to demonstrate to the rest of the alliance that he means it when he says America's back and America is a good ally. So we really do have this opportunity. That said, of course, Biden is protectionist. His industrial policy is built around Buy America and jobs in America. But we can perhaps fit under the North American umbrella as the U.S. moves to enhance, uh, to inshore, reshore, and create an industrial policy to secure supply chains of which Buy America is central. Again, some of the stuff that Ian pointed out. We need to ensure that Buy America includes Canada for the reasons that Catherine pointed out. You know, the supply chain dynamics actually work. This is one of the long-standing Canadian arguments, but not always accepted on the U.S. side. But we really do have to make this case now. For this to work, we need regional and bottom-up pressure from states, provinces, and cities who understand the importance of cross-border trade and investment. We need to bring business and labor, especially our buildings, trades, and industrial unions, into the effort. Some, like the steelworkers, the champions of Buy America, are brothers or sisters to their Canadian counterparts. Joe Biden likes unions, so let's use the advantage that no other country possesses with these shared uh, unions. The thinking community is behind this with much good work done at places like the Wilson Center, the Bush Institute, and others, including the Council on Foreign Relations. It starts with getting our borders open. Public opinion gets the economic advantage, but they want insurance through vaccine certification, uh, the health equivalent of the security insurance that we get with Trusted Traveler Program. We managed the customs screen for decades and created a security perimeter after 9-11 that works well. Now we'll need to install a health screen using vaccine certification, testing and uh, tracing with enforcement to keep us healthy and safe. We want a reliable ally and the US wants a reliable ally. We will have to spend more on defense, especially in the Arctic where Russia and China are more of a threat and the US would like us to do more as they concentrate on the Indo-Pacific. In return, with the guarantee of critical minerals and energy, vital to the US, new US industrial policy, we expect the United States to include us within the Buy America perimeter. Our mutual competitiveness will improve and when Mexico is ready to join, the door is open. And I think I'll stop there, Richard, and let Eric pick it up from there. Yes, uh, good morning, good afternoon, everyone. Great pleasure to be with you today and uh, thanks for, for having this important discussion. As has been pointed out by a number of panelists, the Canada-US relationship is uh, enormous, multifaceted, uh, incorporating, incorporating everything from trade, travel, movement of people, uh, national defense, and really over the, the course of the last 100 years or so, habits of cooperation have really been developed in deep and very fundamental ways. So I think, though, as we look at where we sit in 2021, uh, it's important to look back over the last couple of decades to see what happened. It has been 
by and large, a fairly challenging period for Canada-U.S. relations. Uh, the administration since the year 2000 uh, and their Canadian counterparts have had to deal with obviously major border measures after 9-11, foreign policy disagreements such as the war in Iraq, challenges over energy policy in the Keystone XL pipeline, COVID, and things of that nature. And you've seen significant strains that have arisen. Uh, the Trump era is something which still resonates very significantly in the bilateral relationship. And one of the great challenges that President Biden has is to find a way to rebuild trust with allies such as Canada. Canadians still well remember the, uh, the declarations of, of Canada uh, in its uh, steel and aluminum and Many took it as Canadians themselves as a threat to national security. They remember threats to destroy the economy. And they look nervously out at the 2024 presidential election to wonder whether there will be an administration that is, as many see it, hostile to Canada in that uh, period. But that said, with the Biden administration, you have seen an, an administration that is overly friendly, committed to building alliances, committed to building partnerships. So while that anxiety exists and real damage has been done during the Trump years to the relationship, it's important to look ahead to see what one can do knowing uh, with all of the complexities that there exists. So as has been pointed out, you've had the Canada-US roadmap that has emerged. A lot of interesting and very important things uh, in that roadmap. So just to take a couple of areas, so cooperation on cybersecurity, cooperation on NATO, a statement to, of wanting to revitalize the North American Leaders Summit in a trilateral context, uh, obviously the two Michaels. And further commitments were made also at the Leaders Climate Summit in April. And so there is a big agenda which countries have committed to working on. Now, importantly, in the Canadian political context, and every country has its own political context, what one could call the big three issues are not addressed in any of these frameworks. So the first of the big three issues is really energy market access. So one of the first acts of President Biden in office was to cancel the Keystone XL pipeline. And Canada, as a country that is arguably really an energy superpower, saw that as something that was uh, a grave and disappointing action. Because after all, uh, even during the period between 2010 and 2015, when the Obama administration was assessing the Keystone XL pipeline, the US built the equivalent of 10 Keystone XL pipelines uh, within its own country. And so that coupled with the issues around line three, line uh, five in Michigan, line three in Minnesota uh, have created some friction because Canada has more energy than it knows what to do with and it needs to be able to export that. The second of the fundamental issues has to do with Buy America and Buy American. Uh, as Colin pointed out, uh, President Biden is instinctively in favor of Buy America and Buy American policies. Uh, a key early act was to issue an executive order which uh, reformed the process of giving out waivers. And he has made clear that he's very skeptical on that process. And so working together 
with labor unions and others to convince the administration that the U.S. and Canada really do have more in common with each other than they than than otherwise, and that really they should work together on these sorts of uh, bilateral uh, procurement issues is really something that is fundamental and and needs to be done. But the third issue also in this relationship is softwood lumber. And that has been a perennial issue. When you look back at the history of the shaping of the border between Maine and New Brunswick and uh, the whole areas of friction, this thing has been going on literally for centuries. And so uh, in the modern era, we are in the fifth major round of trade uh, disputes over softwood lumber. And there isn't an evident pathway to a resolution on that. Now, when one looks ahead, there is uh, the all-important issue that the U.S. is seeking uh, cooperation from allies on, and that is addressing the rise of China. So there was a recent bill passed by the U.S. Senate, still pending approval by the House, which looked at raising the U.S.'s game in terms of competitiveness in technology and other areas vis-a-vis -vis China. Buried within that legislation, was a requirement that the US should develop a detailed roadmap for how it will work with Canada and with other allies, but it specifically called out in detailed Canada uh, in terms of how do you, how do the two countries work together vis-a-vis -vis China? Now, Canada has a very challenging situation with China. The two Michaels are being held arbitrarily by the Chinese government. And, uh, and this is something which is of grave importance to Canada. Uh, but the ability to take punitive action also has other effects because China is a major buyer of Canadian commodities and things of that nature. And so thinking through how does one shift the relationship with China, how can the two countries optimally work together in their sweet spots and at the same time be very effective is something that's going to be very important. But as Colin points out, if Canada is uh, perhaps imperiling some export access uh, to China, because China is known to be arbitrary in terms of its desire to close markets for those who do things that it doesn't like, is the U.S. willing to, to work with Canada, for example, on an exemption from Buy American at the same time. And so there's a whole variety of issues and one cannot assume that one country or the other shares exactly the same interests or challenges in the relationship. And there needs to be a dialogue about what, to, what better together looks like for both on this particular front. Uh, in addition, and this speaks to the mandate of the Institute of the Americas, you have uh, Canada's cooperation in Latin America. So Canada has been a real leader on the whole uh, push for democratization in Venezuela. It has good things to offer. Uh, Vice, uh, Vice President Harris's initiative in the Northern Triangle with respect to migration. And so seeing that as also a good pathway for cooperation is something that is crucially important. Let me end by identifying a number of opportunities. Uh, first opportunity, and this has been mentioned, is critical minerals. I would go slightly further and more specific to say, if the United States commits to a long-term purchase of Canadian critical minerals, obviously there'd have to be a rate of return associated with that, 
might it not be in Canada's interest to to work to to build and open and commission mines in Canada that would be directly associated with offtake agreements to the US government. That means that Canada wouldn't be left having paid for a facility uh, to be developed and not have an end market for it. But I think there's a good amount of synergies in terms of offtakes and other things that could be done, whether that goes to the Defense Logistics Agency or others, we'll have to see. Another area that we may want to look at in this period of relative trade peace within North America is uh, the sunset clause in USMCA. Uh, there is a mechanism that has been put in place, albeit one that is hard to operationalize, but could see a sunsetting of USMCA over time. Might it not be worth a discussion about do we want to simply eliminate that provision and to commit to making the USMCA framework, a permanent ongoing and living framework. A third area of opportunity, and this was alluded to at the Leaders Climate Summit, is mass timber. Uh, there's There are great centers of excellence emerging in Oregon and British Columbia and Toronto and other places of that nature. And one thing we know about Canada is there's a lot of trees. And so how can one work more readily together on standards, adoption, and exports of mass timber. Certainly a, 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 an additional area to focus on is Canada and the US should work together on software integrity issues. After the colonial pipeline ransomware attack, there was a major uh, executive order that was issued by the Biden administration and part of that process will look at the integrity of supply chains for making software. This is something that Canada will want to be involved with and should want to be involved with, uh, both because a lot of this software will end up being used by corporate Canada and also because there are undoubtedly uh, additional opportunities. Uh, a last piece, and I think this goes to the realm of needing to think creatively, is um, I've been reading a little bit lately about the Alaska Native Corporations. Uh, these are corporations that were set up 50 years ago out of the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act. Some of these community organizations have grown to be billion dollar plus companies. Uh, exploring how perhaps uh, projects or groups in the Yukon and other parts of the Canadian North could work more closely with their counterparts in Alaska would be a worthwhile venture. Uh, there is a great burgeoning uh, Aboriginal business community or, or, or Native American business community in, uh, within North America, but looking at using uh, capital that exists uh, in some of these groups in North America, in, in particularly in, in Alaska, to fund projects in the Arctic would be something that's crucially important. We have ignored the Arctic for far too long, and so thinking creatively about holders of capital and those that need infrastructure and other projects uh, to be operationalized is something that should definitely be a priority. And if those who live in the region can be owners and investors in these projects, that's all to the good. So great deal of opportunities, despite having had, uh, ha had some challenges in recent years. But I think the future of the Canada-US relationship is very bright and there is just so much that we can do together. Eric, thank you so much for that perspective. I think you shared some, um, some of the interesting challenges and opportunities we have in the bilateral relationship, both in terms of opportunity 
but as well as some of the conflicts. So thank you for that perspective. Uh, we now turn to um, Kirsten Stewart, um, who will share some of her perspectives from where she sits in Los Angeles um, in the center of the creative economy. So um, Kirsten, take it away. Thank you, Richard, uh, and hi, yes, I'm Kirsten Stewart. I've been spending the last three years working with the World Economic Forum, uh, and I'm happy to give a bit of a global perspective on what we've been seeing in terms of this opportunity to build back better. I think you know the pandemic has obviously uh, uncovered uh, and magnified in many ways a lot of the disparities that we've been seeing globally, whether that's economic or whether that's social, and you know, with the benefits of what the forum has seen over the past years of the working together of the both public and private uh, uh, organizations and enterprises to come up with good global solutions that are sustainable through a challenging time like this, I think is, is kind of more important than ever. Uh, this idea of building back better through the pandemic um, and trying to find the ways that we can actually you know, help communities out of what have been long-term uh, um, issues that, again, were you know, incredibly, as was pointed out off of the top with um, the, the conversation, when you see the, the difference between economic groups racialized groups, um, different groups, uh, uh, both geographically and uh, age groups have been impacted you know, quite uh, severely by the pandemic. There is an opportunity here to re reassess the kinds of systems that have perhaps for many generations um, been problematic in supporting uh, a lot of these uh, different groups. So the building back better, I think for the forum has been an opportunity to look at how can we through public and private partnership find a better way out of this incredibly challenging situation, uh, both economic and social and where those challenges have actually merged. I specifically, as Richard mentioned off the top, work with the media sector at the World Economic Forum. And so that means working with different media platforms, media organizations, groups, who have a very global perspective on the impact of content, the, uh, the distribution of information, access to the microphone uh, on a global basis. Uh, platforms, publishers, content creators all form part of the group that I work with at the World Economic Forum. And they come from everywhere from advertising to social media, uh, traditional media like newspapers, television uh, um, outlets, as well as content creators um, in music and sport um, and all forms of entertainment and news uh, as well. So it's an interesting group of people who, again, have this opportunity to think together about what what are the ways in which we can collectively uh, work to uh, make the make the world a better place? Uh, essentially, that that is what the focus of the forum has been. And together with our partners, we look at the ways that you know, the impact of the pandemic, particularly, has had on a number of the groups that are either part of the audience or part of the creator economy that take part uh, in in the media sector um, have, 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 have been affected uh, through this time and ways that we can uh, look through uh, technology or through other means to see that we can improve on these these states. It was an in, it was an interesting time uh, through the pandemic, I think, you know, for a lot of us who were living here in North America, 
uh, lockdown meant uh, a return to the couch uh, and a and a and, and a need for entertainment in a way that had not been probably experienced in some time. Uh, one where we were very much uh, uh, reliant on a form of entertainment that would be um, keeping us uh, engaged through a through a time that was you know, incredibly distracting. Uh, I think we've we've all become Zoom experts. Um, we've all known uh, the proliferation of the streaming uh, uh, platforms that have been launched through this time. Never before has there been more of a demand for content, and yet never before had there been so much challenge in creating uh, because of the pandemic and various lockdowns that had happened throughout North America, in Hollywood, in Toronto, and some of the major production centers. Uh, so, had, so had never had there been such a a, a disparity of de demand and such a, uh, a crisis when it came to the creation and supply of content. Uh, and when we think about that in terms of entertainment content and the kinds of ways that we need to keep people engaged and 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 entertained in their home through a lockdown period, you can also imagine how problematic and how important it was when it came to information that was uh, on a reliant basis through a pandemic, information that you needed to know, uh, vital information, um, information that would, uh, would would be important, whether it was figuring out what you were going to do with your vaccination schedule or how to how to, how to educate your child. Uh, you know, there was a number of, of demands on information and, and a huge proliferation of disinformation that also uh, proliferated through this time. So that was also a focus of our group and how to make sure that we created safe digital spaces at a time when there was so much content uh, flooding onto platforms globally. Um, that was incredibly important to, to make sure that information was not disinformation and that it was safe information. In fact, the forum just announced uh, today a, an important coalition in the child safety uh, sector in recognition of the fact that as, as creators, we we have an important uh, responsibility to make sure that we create safe spaces uh, for, for all members of society. And this one is particularly focusing on children. And so we've just announced a, a coalition this morning uh, with response to uh, the challenges in, in child safety uh, online. Um, in addition to the, 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 the impact that we saw through the pandemic, and and this kind of disparity between the demand for content and yet the challenge in actually creating a supply of content, it really did point out how important a supply chain uh, content is and how media plays a part in that and the media sector, whether it's from the value chain or the supply chain from content creator to consumption, all along that supply chain, there are various vulnerabilities, um, but there's also various opportunities. And I think the innovations that were forced uh, through the this time of lockdown, through this time of of needing uh, to rise up to the to the demand and the call for a good, verifiable, and and entertaining content through through the pandemic, has forced a huge acceleration in innovation in creation. Uh, and it's just like everyone seems to have bought a ring light and uh, become an expert content creator at home. Uh, this is actually a good thing in many ways because it's now created this new opportunity where we have content creators that are not necessarily funneled through large systems, but actually 
are a growing industry um, and can, it can be found uh, in, in every corner. Uh, that's also create, created demand on our systems in order to create opportunities for share of voice and share of platform. Uh, so that's also an, um, another thing that I think we'll start to see in the next coming months is as as uh, regulators start getting back to the table and looking at things like Section 230 and in other areas where uh, the, the whole regulation of who gets access to the pipeline, I think will be an important thing to look at um, as we start coming out of this pandemic. We've also seen through the work that I've been doing at the forum, uh, how platforms, how content creators, how major uh, uh, multinational uh, companies and corporations have stepped up in a time when it was necessary, not just in the forms of creating content, but creating content that matters and creating content that actually responded to some of the social inequities that were magnified through the pandemic, whether it was Black Lives Matter or some of the other uh, social uh, uh, campaigns that we saw that were important to audiences, important to creators, important to society in general, uh, whether it was sports uh, entities, whether it was uh, publishers, platforms, there was a call to action to really step up and understand the role that storytellers play in making sure that stories are told from various perspectives that diversity was represented, that there was an opportunity to actually share that microphone in the promise that social media had initially uh, uh, done when it when it had uh, first launched. Uh, there was, I think, an expectation that uh, information and voice would be democratized through the launch of social media. And I think we really saw that put to the test through the pandemic. Uh, so as we look to build back better, I think it's gonna be interesting to see how we, uh, look at the challenges that we've just undergone in the last few months, take a look at the opportunities that were created through different technologies and different uh, processes that were put into place through the pandemic as we learned to work our way in ways that we never have before. Uh, and I look forward to the conversation around what we can do to work better as we move forward out of this pandemic. Thanks, Richard. I'm going to uh, start this conversation with a couple questions for our uh, panelists. Uh, Eric spoke about the softwood lumber issue. Uh, under the Trump administration, uh, the um, tariffs for Canadian softwood lumber were increased by over 20 percent. Um, and in light of the COVID um, supply chain issues that we are having globally, but particularly in North America, um, I would like to get perspective from Eric, maybe, and, and also from um, from uh, Ian to, to talk further about this issue. Uh, obviously, increased tariff hurt U.S. consumers. Um, lumber prices here in Southern California are going through the roof and are impacting builders, impacting um, homeowners that are looking to remodel. In light of the fact that we have a new administration, is there any sort of leeway on this issue of softwood lumber? Because this is becoming a an issue that many people here in Southern California are talking about. Yes, thanks, Richard, for the question. So fundamentally, the United States produces about 70% of the softwood lumber that it consumes. So every year, on average, it needs to import about 30% of its needs. Canada is the logical uh, location from which to source that lumber because you can put it on a truck and drive it there, put it on a train uh, and uh, and roll it there. But you have seen uh, a situation where since the early 1980s, first with the Coalition for Fair Lumber Imports, now the US Lumber Coalition, 
you have seen uh, persistent U.S. actions on softwood lumber uh, with respect to anti-dumping and countervail. This fundamentally turns on the issue of stumpage uh, and also a, a secondary issue around uh, British Columbia's log export restrictions. 92% uh, of the forest land in Canada is publicly owned, which means that the government essentially charges a fee to those who want to log that land, whereas a big chunk of U.S. forests, particularly in the southeast, are privately owned. So it's a very, very different dynamic. And so the coalition has for some time gotten together to push for U.S. trade action against Canadian lumber. This has had the effect of driving up prices over the long term. And uh, what you see in this uh, shock that has, has unfolded over the last couple of months is that combination of long-term tariff pressure on U.S. lumber prices coupled with shortages from softwood have meant that uh, that uh, two-by-four prices have peaked at $1,640 per thousand board foot. A year before, it was $350 per thousand board foot. So a huge impact. And so people are naturally saying, what can we do to help to, to relieve uh, this grave pressure? And what can be done is for the two countries to work together on negotiating a long-term sustainable softwood lumber agreement. But that involves also convincing the 20-odd companies in the coalition to be willing to, in essence, consider removing their case that would be an important step to allowing this type of negotiation to go forward. But for now, uh, unfortunately, uh, you're going to end up paying an awful lot of money if you want to put a deck on your house. Just, uh, just a, a few points to add on, and I want to be careful in my answer in that I'm not in a position to speak about things that are under active litigation or um, or issues that are that that are being uh, discussed in the context of the, of the WTO. But what what I can say is that. Um, or the, the softwood lumber industry is one that uh, that we are watching very closely developments and that from a Department of Commerce perspective, one of the things that we are mindful of is that uh, that the majority of the producers of softwood uh, of softwood lumber are, are, are mills, uh, small local mills within the U.S. And so there's a there's certainly an important job component uh, that that we're that we're watching carefully in the Biden Harris administration um, is very interested in ensuring that. You know, the U.S. softwood lumber producers are able to compete on a level playing field as we look at this. Um, one of the things that I can say is that uh, uh, mindful of the larger supply chain discussion, there is a task force on supply chain disruptions uh, that, was, that, is, that was chartered um, and as part of the um, executive order process that I mentioned in my formal remarks. And the construction home building sector is one of the one of the areas that that supply chain disruption task force is going to look at. So without prejudice to sort of the established processes that we have um, under the agreement, and again, things that are under active litigation that have to run their course, uh, there is a space for uh, for consideration of, uh, of, of construction home building in the context of supply chains. I don't know what the result of that conversation will be, but it provides a venue for having, having um, hopefully what can be a productive discussion on what has been a, a topic of great concern for a number of years to both countries. Over. Colin, do you have a perspective on the softwood lumber issue? Yeah, thanks, Richard. Look, this is something that goes back, as, as I think Eric said earlier, generations and centuries. 
when I was at the embassy in Washington and we were in the last renegotiation of the softwood lumber agreements that we negotiated in the 80s, when we were leading up to the Canada-US free trade agreement, then led to the NAFTA, uh, my then boss, Frank McKenna, who was our ambassador, turned to me and said, when did this start? So I phoned the Librarian of Congress, who had become a friend, and said, when was the first Canada-US, the Americans put it, timber dispute? He waited a couple of days, got back to me and said, this goes back to the second George Washington administration. And then the battle was between Massachusetts and New Brunswick. At that point, Massachusetts included Maine. Maine didn't become a state till 1821. And it had to do with the timber or lumber from, uh, from New Brunswick going down to Boston and competing with it because, of course, everybody wanted the 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 timber for ships, masts, and building ships, wood building ships at that time. So I became convinced after living through these the, the 80s and the 90s and the knots and the negotiations that this is uh, another. This is a chronic condition. The most we can hope for is managed trade, and that's essentially what we've got now is managed trade. So we export to the U.S. and Canadians are paying a lot higher price for their decks too, Eric. As I went looking for some to do some addition to our cottage recently. But so the, the North American consumer is the, the victim and the, the, the producers, particularly in Canada, are the winners. And the, the losers, as I say, are particularly the consumers in Canada and in the United States. But we have managed trade. We've done the same thing now to the auto trade. And I think this is something you just have to live with. Uh, it goes to litigation and it goes to the World Trade Organization and we'll use the dispute settlement in the, the new NAFTA but I think basically we're going to have to manage for, for managed trade as long as we are seen to be, and we are, a more competitive than our American counterparts. And the real problem here is not the Northwest, as I used to think it was back in the days. It really is down in the Southeast, where you've got small owners of, of timber lots, which are essentially their pensions. I remember Haley Barber, the governor of Mississippi, being down to see him and he said, let me explain it to you. And he did. He, he was somebody who really understood how Washington works. So I think a chronic condition that we'll end up with managed trade, that's just the way it is. Thank you. Um, I want to turn to the issue of cybersecurity. Um, we all recently saw the impacts of the colonial pipeline uh, ransomware attack um, and the impact that had on the Northeast of the United States as well as Southeast. Um, what if that would have happened on one of the cross-border pipelines between the U.S. and Canada, I wanted to see if you could touch on the issue of cyber, um, cybersecurity, ransomware, and impacts on the U.S.-Canada trade relationship, and what um, our respective governments are doing to work with industry to address some of these emerging issues which we're all facing. I can take that because uh, I was very involved in setting up the private sector coordination infrastructure in Canada, so. Uh, there are cyber attacks all, all the time, as the CEO of the Southern Company uh, put it after the Colonial Pipeline. He said, if the Colonial Pipeline attack was a wake-up call, you really must have been asleep. Uh, there are, these attacks are constantly uh, occurring, uh, and, uh, and uh, so it's a matter of hardening the infrastructure, looking at where uh, where it is that uh, your software is made. When you dig into the solar winds attack, which was the attack which became public at the end of last year, solar winds was a major supplier of Microsoft and this, these 
tools were used by uh, by uh, corporate North America, the governments, and so on. SolarWinds, their major supplier of software, was actually developing software in Belarus, you know, which is essentially a Russian colony. And so you wonder why there is where why there are cybersecurity issues. Start with the very basics of where are you developing this stuff? What are the standards you're looking at? How is it that you're moving the process forward? Co the Colonial Pipeline uh, Group apparently did not have proper air gapping in their system between their industrial control system and their email system. So there's a lot that can be done in terms of cyber hygiene as we look ahead to the future. But of course, the one issue that I that also is looming in cybersecurity is the quantum computing revolution, which is something that you're starting to see emerge in California and other places. Quantum computing will, likely within a decade, have the power to break all public key encryption systems currently in use, so RSA and the other encryption systems. So the National Institutes for Standards and Technology, part of the Commerce Department, and others are developing what are called post-quantum encryption protocols. So this battle is constant. Uh, bad actors, criminals, nation states, and others are constantly attacking. And it's important to harden current systems in North America and ensure that we have the best possible hygiene uh, in terms of the pipelines that interconnect us, the highways that interconnect us, and all the rest. I'll jump in uh, very briefly just to confirm that you know, this, is a, this is a topic that is of great interest to both governments and their uh, aspects of it that are within the province of the Department of Commerce that are done by, uh, handled by our organization, this as Eric mentioned, and there are also elements that are handled by the Department of Homeland Security. And one of the things that we're looking at um, in the context of the roadmap is having the issue of cybersecurity a, a space where we can have a dialogue about things that we can do better. We also, as Department of Commerce, have a good relationship with ISET, our Canadian counterpart, that handles uh, um, uh, techno technological issues like quantum computing and AI. And so uh, uh, the relationship that we have between our organizations presents a potential venue for having conversations about what we can do as a, as a practical matter uh, to, to, to actually act upon the concern for the safety that we have on this sort of critical technological infrastructure. And it's certainly gonna be an issue that we have to keep after for some time, but the good news is that we have experts uh, that are in contact with one another and the potential to hopefully uh, advance this work as, the, as this is a risk that will persist. Um, Colin, any, any thoughts? Uh, Christine, any thoughts uh, regarding the issue of cyber? There's a wonderful book out, I think that Kel Penroth, this is how the world ends. I recommend to anybody who's interested in the cyber thing to, to read this book. She goes through and basically outlines the kind of things that both Ian and Eric have talked about. We're going to turn to some of the uh, questions from the, uh, from the audience. We've got several. Um, the first question um, um, is related to um, why the Buy American provisions are harmful to bilateral trade um, and really counter the spirit of shared North American pr uh, prosperity. And, um, and why they need to exist in the North American context, either in NAFTA 1.0 or 2.0. So uh, we could, maybe Ian, you wanna talk about Buy America? Um, Eric, maybe you have some perspectives on that. Sure, I can, I can start a bit on this. And I think probably the first piece that I would mention is that uh, nothing in the executive order on Buy American is 
it overrides current law. Nothing is is inconsistent with ex, ex, existing U.S. rights and obligations under our international agreements, such as the WTO agreement on government procurement. So I think that's part of. I think that's the, the first piece I would mention. The second thing that that I would mention is that really the objective of the executive order is to look at uh, how the mechanisms that we have to ensure compliance with the laws as they are currently written and ensure that there isn't uh, inappropriate exploitation of, of loopholes. So I think that the, the conversation is, is somewhat at a, at a more technical level, but does not override our overall international obligations. And certainly where Canadian companies are working on transactions that are covered by the WTO GPA, uh, though their access would not be in any way uh, affected. So Ian's right that that it, that it is entirely consistent with U.S. law. The uh, the question, I guess, really is: Is this the way that we want to be organizing ourselves in the context of a North American market? And so, U.S. companies have roughly nine percent of Canadian federal government procurement, and Canadian companies have less than much less than one percent of US federal government procurement. And the sense is, is that if you are able to have suppliers from both countries, you can get better products and better services. But if we, uh, as we look at it, there's also the question of what more can we be doing together to use procurement as a lever to advance our goals in all of the areas of uh, 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 that are under review by supply chains, to advance our goals in terms of competitiveness, vis-a-vis China. And so I think Canada should be thought of as something differently because the U.S.-Canada relationship is very different than the U.S.-Belgium relationship or the U.S.-Vietnam relationship. It's something that is unique and different and that by American provisions are arguably more destructive in the context of the Canada-U.S. relationship, given the depth and breadth of context, than it is in the context of relations with other countries. So that would be what I would submit. Let's turn to the creative economy. We had a question about the um, level of um, bilateral collaboration between Canada and the United States um, and USMCA. Um, Christine, sitting uh, where you are in Los Angeles, um, in the midst of Hollywood and the, um, and the entertainment industry, what, um, what do you see in terms of new potential collaborations that can, can occur um, under USMCA um, um, or in terms of the overall bilateral relationship to expand um, the service economy between the US and Canada um, in entertainment um, and in media. I know Toronto has become a, a hotbed of film recently. A lot of American film companies are moving there to do production. Um, love to get your perspectives on this. Sure. Um, not speaking specifically to the um, the bilateral agreement, but in general around you know the opportunities that we're finding uh, in the sector you know between Canada and the U.S. There obviously has been a very long term relationship. Canadian companies have have, uh, have come down to the states um, for their creative um, projects. Vice versa, American companies go to Canada for shooting. I think you know there's been quite a shift in recent times around the purpose behind. Uh, or the motivation behind a lot of that movement, um, which in the past was, I think, predominantly 
um, motivated by uh, various tax and and uh, exchange rate uh, benefits. Uh, but now I think there's a deep understanding of the talent base that's located in in both areas and how across North America. Uh, there, these talent pools can work uh, collaboratively in order to create some amazing content. So I think, you know, what was initially, I think, built on the basis of incentives, I think has now grown to a state of one where it's actually seen as a, a benefit to be working together simply because of the, the, the opportunities that are found at the, the high, high level of, of, of talent base. We've had conversations uh, lately with, uh, for example, I was uh, interviewing um, Ted Sarandos, the uh, uh, co-CEO of Netflix, whose first ever uh, external uh, location outside of the U.S. Uh, for Netflix was in Canada. It was the first place it launched. And, you know, that's in, I think, um, reference to a lot of the the, the kind of cultural um, similarities between Canada and the U.S. in terms of audience and, and appeal. But it's, I think also, and as he pointed out, it's a huge benefit to actually uh, tapping into the talent base that's in Canada and that's developed over the time of these incentives. You know, the, the repeated uh, uh, productions that have been taking place over the years in Vancouver, uh, Toronto, Montreal, across the country have really established an amazing talent base that is recognized internationally. And so uh, those folks come into Canada to do their productions uh, and and really capitalize and, and take advantage of a very diverse workforce. I think this is a real golden age for the creative economy. When you look at the at the performance of the uh, the comedy Schitt's Creek, that is an extraordinary example of Canadian talent and production that has done very well in the the U.S. and the global economy. And it's a a matter of of saying how do we unlock these creators that you have in Canada to get them access to the global economy? Because you go on any of the platforms, Hulu, Netflix, uh, Amazon, whatever, you can watch shows from around the world. And so it's a question of how do you get that channel, that Canadian aesthetic uh, for a global audience? And of course, there's also debates about copyright, uh, what the European copyright uh, law looked like. I did some work for the Music Publishers Association and the whole question of the value gap and who gets paid what for, uh, for certain content. But I think in the main, fundamentally, if you're uh, if you're Canada, there is a great opportunity for both getting, getting Canadian voices and Canadian talent out there in the world. And just like uh, Canada is a close and good market for Netflix to come to, the U.S. is also a close and good market for creative Canadian creators to engage with. Richard, I'm going to say I'm, I think it it underlines the one of the great values of industrial policy because one of the early examples in Canada of an industrial policy where the content rules, particularly as it applied to our, our music industry. And it, as a result, we punch way beyond our weight because I think that the content rules in Canada that guaranteed a certain amount of air, uh, of space on our radio television was, was used by, had to be used by Canadian content, uh, allowed that then to be magnified out. And I certainly found when I was posted in Los Angeles and I'm sure Zavin Arlen would agree that 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 the talent uh, scouts were were looking to Canada because we had all this talent. So they used to come and watch our journalism. We used to have parties at the residence. 
so people could come and watch what's going on. Now, of course, you just can go online and watch all this. But I, I do think that it, it underlines a, a kind of early industrial policy that really worked for Canada. We have a question related to the to Canadian content, which which many of you have just touched upon. Um, and um, there is a bill in Canada, Bill C-10, um, that um, that works to emphasize um, the uh, protection of Canadian content. Uh, the question from Amar Simpson um, had to do with the the level of U.S. control by major multinationals, you know, Netflix, Amazon, um, Apple, et cetera, um, and um, the opportunity for Canada to do it right. Um, I wanted to see maybe um, you could comment on the issue of Canadian content um, as we evolve um, in this age of internet and um, and what had become sort of a homogenization of, um, of American culture uh, in media. I can kick off the top of that. So as formerly the head of the CBC, um, obviously, and, and thanks for the shout out to Schitt's Creek there, because that was one of uh, the great uh, successes of the team. And before that, obviously, um, shows like Dragon's Den and Little Mosque on the Prairie, where my husband Zabe was actually um, uh, lead on, uh, have, have shown you know the benefits of Canadian content. I think what we have to be very aware of now, and without specifics to you know, the, the, the bill that's in place, because I haven't read the bill um, currently, um, but in a global context, when you think about Canadian content and the benefits of Canadian talent, I think sometimes we get caught up in definitions. And you know, as, as Colin rightly pointed out, those early policies were very much um, responsible for laying the groundwork of, of nurturing a lot of great Canadian talent. But I think in today's world where you look at a global marketplace where uh, borders uh, really don't hold back um, distribution and they don't hold back broadcasting uh, and they don't hold back audiences, we are really living in a global marketplace now. And to define Canadian content narrowly, I think, actually is a bit of a challenge when it comes to uh, actually motivating a lot of content creators to take advantage of, as Eric is pointing out, a global marketplace is now available to it. Um, so I think we do have to revisit uh, how we view Canadian content in a policy way in a new framework when a global marketplace no longer kind of requires it to be as specific as it had in the past. When you think of great uh, Canadian talent now and how they've made their mark globally, they did not necessarily come up through the Canadian content system uh, to do that. Um, and I'm thinking of Justin Bieber, Lily Singh, you know, these are a number of, of big Canadian talents that are global um, superstars who have made their mark using US platforms or global platforms. So it is a, there. you can't live, you know, we live in a world where Canadian talent has benefited over the years from a structure that supported and nurtured Canadian talent through a Canadian content requirement. But now that we're in a global marketplace, the global framework, I think we have to revisit what Canadian content looks like. Because when I'm sitting and watching Netflix and I watch Ginny and Georgia, which is ostensibly an American show, and yet I see the director of Sud Sutherland, who is a Canadian, I see the actors, Jim Robertson and a number of others um, reflected on screen who are all Canadian, that is actually you know, perpetuating and nurturing you know, the, the great Canadian talent on a global basis and giving them a global platform uh, for exposure and for growth. So I think you know, we have to be mindful of the fact that we're in a global marketplace now and look at those rules probably with a different prism. 
We've had several questions about USMCA and the broader North American relationship. Um, one, um, one question from Stephen Armstrong was, um, you know, he, he notes that we're about to celebrate the first anniversary of the USMCA. Um, and he, he asks, how best can we keep the agreement top of mind in the coming years with businesses, especially to encourage more trade engagement with small business, women-owned businesses, and other communities who have historically not exported as much as the others um, in, the, in the North American context? I don't know if anybody wants to take that question on. Sure, Richard, I can, I can start with some of that and just mention that it, the USMCA has a particular emphasis on, emphasis on small and medium-sized enterprises, actually having a chapter on it and a committee that's responsible for looking after uh, 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 this particular constituency and giving them the opportunity to in, to engage in the agreement and take advantage of its of its benefits. One of the one of the obligations that the parties have under the uh, SME chapter is to provide an information resource, uh, and so what we so that small and medium sized enterprises have ready access to information to be able to un, get, get a better understanding of the agreement and really take advantage of it. What we've done as a Department of Commerce is we've created a, a, a specific website um, to support uh, as part of the Department of Commerce website, which is a which is a library of resources and contacts. Uh, it fulfills the, the obligation under the SME chapter, but it's also a really great go-to resource. It has links to our counterparts in the Canadian government, so uh, they have the opportunity to understand those requirements uh, in, in, in both Canada and Mexico, and it gets a fair and it gets a fair amount of traffic. So that's one way that we do it is providing information in one place for SMEs to access. But the other thing that we're doing is as, as part of the Biden Harris administration's overall approach is we're taking we're we're giving specific attention to how we do outreach to women-owned businesses to to small and medium-sized enterprises to businesses that are from uh, traditionally underserved communities. Uh, and so while we have already in statute an obligation to make sure that we as the International Trade Administration provide service to small and medium-sized enterprises, we actually have a metric for the percentage of clients that should represent small and medium-sized enterprises. What we are looking at is working through working through chambers of commerce and other emphasis organizations to make sure that there's better awareness of the services and support that we can provide as the Department of Commerce to those industries that may have an interest in exporting but haven't quite made that leap yet. So we're working through the U.S. Uh, the U.S. Export Assistance Centers that I mentioned during my presentation to make sure that there's better awareness, to give them the opportunity to ask questions, and to link them via our UZX to our colleagues overseas and the and the commercial service offices, so that where there are market opportunities overseas, that we're creating that bridge for them so that they can accomplish deals. So that's some of the work that we're doing in, in Department of Commerce. Thank you. Um, any of our other panels have a perspective on this issue of greater access under USMCA for smaller businesses? And uh... so, so fundamentally, um, the utilization of trade agreements is first and foremost a, a national priority. And so Ian's gone through the many things that the U.S. is doing in Canada. There's been a big outreach effort from the Trade Commissioner Service on better utilizing the agreement. I think one of the things that the North American integration framework, if you want to call it that, has always struggled with is an ability to think through common projects beyond simply having the trade agreement. And so it's obviously down to companies to use the agreement, 
governments to help companies to use this agreement. But the question is, how do we, as, as three countries as part of this agreement, how are we able to leverage this platform or to extend this platform uh, to do other types of things, for example, in competition with China or trade with, uh, with certain goods that may be uh, 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 better for the environment or things of that nature. And so I think uh, before NAFTA was negotiated, it was put on autopilot. You had the technical committees that the people who were involved with it paid attention to. But I think it behooves us to think through what is it that we can use this platform for going forward that will help keep it top of mind, both in terms of relevance, but also in terms of an ability to make a meaningful difference in the lives of North Americans. Let's turn to the, uh, related to, to the USMCA, NAFTA, we have another related question um, about what the US and Canada can do to work together in helping to turn Mexico back towards renewable energy given how critical it is to uh, North America to decarbonize um, in terms of the overall energy matrix. Um, as uh, Catherine spoke um, earlier um, about the uh, meeting between Biden and, and Prime Minister uh, Trudeau, um, both countries are committed to climate change. Um, and um, also there's key provisions in the USMCA on environmental enforcement. So would welcome some of your perspectives on this whole issue of, um, of climate, uh, change and energy in the context of USMCA? I mean, in the context of Mexico, Richard, in particular, there's not a lot that the US and Canada can really do. The AMLO administration has rolled back the energy reforms from the, the national electricity regulator. It's rolled back um, some of the reforms with respect to the national oil company. And so, you know, there's obviously uh, best endeavor and encouragement that could be done, perhaps access to finance. But fundamentally, the AMLO administration has chosen, uh, for whatever reason, to take Mexican energy policy in a different direction. And I think uh, that's something that the other countries have to, to look at. And if Mexico isn't uh, wanting to come along with a, a cleaner and greener future that uh, clearly the US and Canada are looking for, then uh, th then that's not something really that others in the grouping can do, unfortunately. Yeah, Richard, I think that's that's right. I think that that you know, we've got two admit two administrations, the Canadian government and the U.S. administration, that are in tandem on many subjects across the board, and we've got the roadmap, which is much more detailed than what the Biden administration came up with, despite best efforts in their part. I think with the AMLO administration, I think that. The whole issue around energy in Mexico, that's got to be sorted out by the Mexicans. We've just had an election which more or less endorsed AMLO, not as much as he wanted, didn't get his super majorities. But I don't think we see, we're going to see any changes in Mexico until the next election. But that doesn't mean, as Eric says, that Canada and the United States can't work together. And I think that's what we have to do. We've got the roadmap. We can set a, uh, we, we, we can do things together which Mexico at some point may decide to join on. It's a bit like Canada and Mexico in the Trans-Pacific Partnership. I mean, after all, this was a an Obama initiative, which the uh, Trump administration uh, rescinded on day one. And now the Biden administration may decide to come back in. But in the meantime, we're doing good work uh, in forging trade relationships and setting a very high bar in uh, in Asia 
in Indo-Pacific that I think the, uh, the Biden administration at some point will want to endorse, but they've got challenges within, as Ian can well speak to, amongst their own caucus within the Democratic Party, which, of course, is still leans right now protectionist. Ian, do you have, a, you have any thoughts on this issue related to Mexico? Uh, uh, sure, Richard. Uh, one thing I would say, and uh, just to pick up a point that Colin made, is that the, the roadmap, the U.S.-Canada uh, partnership roadmap, does offer an opportunity for us uh, to engage and figure out how we can strategize to deal with these to deal with these broader questions. And so I think that's a, a very important point. I do think that I think the observations of, of sort of the tra- the current trajectory of energy policy in Mexico, I think that the assessment's been reasonably fair on that. And it's a space that we're watching very closely as the United States, but um, and, and we're doing what we can to keep uh, channels of communication open and to well, look at opportunities as they emerge, but I think there's a policy perspective that we have to be mindful of in the current Mexican administration. The other piece that I would mention with respect to USMCA is that we have the the environmental commitments as a core of the agreement. And so being part of the core of the agreement uh, creates, creates a venue for watching this space very carefully. And so looking at USMC obligations as relate to the environment and making sure that where the, where Mexican actions are on the other side of compliance on that, that we are using the, the using the, the tools that are available to us under the USMCA to hopefully uh, engage, engage productively with Mexico on that. So again, I think there's a lot of work to be done in this area. Um, another area that we would look at is also uh, the procurement area, again, where there are USMCA commitments that are implicated, making sure that we use the tools available to us under the agreement to try to address them, if not directly, then at least indirectly. Over. Yeah, on the issue of, um, of uh, USMCA commitments, I think it's worth noting that um, you know, the current administration and Congress is looking for reforms in, in the SEC uh, requiring ESG disclosures uh, for all publicly traded companies. And many, co- many Mexican companies are traded on U.S. stock exchanges through ADRs. So irrespective of what the AMLO administration wants to do, there's going to be pressure on Mexican publicly traded companies to um, raise the bar with some of their commitments um, just because of the market pressures that they're going to be facing and regulatory pressures. I don't know if there are any perspectives on that, Eric, um, or others. Yeah, I mean, certainly that particular regulation was much fought over when you look at the uh, the filings around the SEC uh, proposed rules. I mean, they were they were legion, but obviously going ahead uh, there, uh, you are going to see a change in culture because companies are going to have to be become more accountable. And I think what you see in Mexico now is the opportunity for the private sector to lead the government. And certainly a lot of all of those great Mexican business leaders who we've gotten to know and worked with over the last decades during NAFTA have not disappeared suddenly uh, under the AMLO administration. They're there. And so finding ways to work constructively with those in Mexico who want to to push toward a cleaner and greener future is important. And perhaps, uh, as you point out, this, uh, this reporting requirement is a way to, to, to help to catalyze that process. I want to turn to First Nations. We have a couple of questions from David um, um, Adwick um, from the San Diego World Affairs Council. Um, he asks about um, what um, Canada First Nation corporations are doing in terms of investment on a cross-border basis in the United States. 
as well as what um, channels and organizations um, the First Nation groups interact with um, through Ottawa and the, and the Canadian government. If you want to know, it goes since I mentioned Alaska. So uh, certainly uh, the whole area of Aboriginal business has become a very dynamic and exciting space over the last couple of decades. And you start to see some very significant and interesting deals. So in Nunavut, for example, there is a, an association called the KIA, which helps to guide uh, mining and infrastructure and other investments in that part of Canada. Uh, in Nova Scotia, you've recently seen a group of six First Nations groups come together to buy Clearwater Fine Foods, which is uh, the largest exporter of lobsters in the world. They did a billion dollars worth of lobster exports to China last year, for example. Uh, and and uh, they have production in Argentina and other uh, parts of the world. So you're starting to see uh, First Nations groups being involved in bigger projects and participating in the global economy. And of course, there is, um, even within the, the debates over pipelines, so whether it's Trans Mountain or, uh, or what have you, you start seeing uh, debates on what are the benefit agreements, what's the ownership stake. A group of First Nations have just approached the federal government in Canada on buying outright uh, the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which was owned by Kinder Morgan out of Houston, purchased by the Canadian federal government to give confidence in, uh, in, uh, in its uh, fate and survival. And now you've seen First Nations come and say, we'd like to buy that out and operate it. And so I think... Uh, the area of capital accumulation and First Nations business is something that is hugely important. And as the First Nations economies grow and develop, invariably they will spread across borders. And so this holds out the actual hope to do much more for actual participation of First Nations groups within an integrated North American economy than other things necessarily you would see from the government. And it's happening from the ground up based on investment opportunities uh, along the same lines that you or I or anyone else would look at them. Thank you. Um, I want to see if we could, uh, China has been raised, um, a few of you and, and Catherine spoke about the, um, the need for greater multilateral coordination. Um, here in San Diego, we've got uh, Qualcomm, which is a, uh, a leader in 5G, now working on 6G. Um, Huawei has been a contentious issue, both in Canada and the United States. I want to see if maybe you could talk about the, um, the race towards um, the Internet of Things, um, 5G, 6G, and the role that U.S.-Canada bilateral relationship will play in, um, in this new emerging economy. I think what I think that you know we we've looked at the issue of five G as as and and sort of the the future trajectory of our information technology and are very mindful of the of sort of the role that it's going to play in our lives the the, the ever increasing importance but also the the exponential growth and in information that will be coursing through these systems, and so one of the things that we're very we're, we're very mindful of is that you know, security and integrity of those systems is important. And as the as as we're all in a stage where the infrastructure for five G and even its successor generations is being built out, the decisions that we make now about that infrastructure and the security.
security of that infrastructure are going to are going to have consequences, positive or negative, over quite a period of time. And so we've been working very closely with uh, uh, on the issue of sort of ensuring that they're trusted vendors that are brought to the network. And I think one of the one, one of the one of the benefits of the strength of the U.S. Canada relationship is really a, a, a shared sense of values and a, and, a, and a high sense of integrity. And so being able to being able to uh, mobilize ourselves around an understanding of the importance that, of the security of this infrastructure and its appropriate use is something that I think creates a real opportunity for us, not just as we build our respective domestic networks, but also as we are in the position to uh, hopefully uh, make useful suggestions to others around the world that are looking to similarly build out their infrastructure and ensuring that what they build is something that has sort of the best interests of their societies and their businesses at its core. I think fundamentally, uh, the infrastructure uh, is bifurcating or uh, breaking into multiple different pieces. So the the type of telecom network, uh, internet structure and so on that you see in China is very different than what you see in the United States. And so we're going to look at equipment that does different things, that has different standards. And so multi variable uh, equipment, particularly when it comes to issues like cybersecurity and who builds it and who has trust and so on, is going to be something that is crucially important. The key is you have to keep moving forward in a very strong direction. Now, you mentioned Qualcomm. Qualcomm is uh, sees Canada or would see Canada as an important market. And one thing that is slightly wonky that's really important is that Canada basically matches its uh, spectrum structure for telecom equipment based on the U.S. system. So when you have 700 megahertz, uh, uh, you have a 700 megahertz block in Canada, it is configured technically in the same way as it is in the United States. So this is something uh, which which is very important for the National Institutes of uh, the National Telecom and Information Agency, the FCC, and so on. So it means that Qualcomm can sell that chip in a phone that will automatically and seamlessly work in a Canadian context. And so thinking through about standards, what we want in terms of security, this is crucially important. And uh, I think Christine, when she's done with WEF Media, might want to transition to look over at uh, technological futures and how do we actually ensure interoperability among all these systems as people move around the world. We have a, a question and a comment but from Peter Meissen, uh, who's here in San Diego. He says, Canada is the largest uh, trading partner for the United States, especially in, in the context of cross-border high-voltage le- um, electrical connections, where we buy Canada's excess hydropower. A great clean energy win-win. Uh, Canada is also committed to climate change. But he also points out that um, Canada also relies on its uh, tar sands from Alberta, um, which is obviously... Um, a, uh, an industry that has um, challenges in terms of CO2 emissions. Um, he asked, how can we advocate this fuel extraction as well as CO2 reduction as well? Um, how do we reconcile that in the context of humanity, Canada's health and, um, and the current uh, focus on climate change? I don't know if any of the Canadians want to take that on. We need energy. 
when you look at the when you look at the electric vehicle market in the United States or in North America, uh, you're in the low single digits in terms of adoption of electric vehicles. That is something that will change over time, but there has to be a transition process. Uh, in addition, when you look at the oil sands, uh, the oil sands it has an enormous store of of oil in it that is available to the United States. If the United States does not buy oil from Canada, it will buy oil from Venezuela and will buy oil from other regimes that are less friendly to the United States and its interests. It's important to dig into the science of what's gone on in the oil sands, the massive reduction in the quantity of, of water that it takes to make a barrel of oil and the energy intensity that you look at. But we are at the beginning of what is a long transition in terms of fossil fuels. And lest we also forget that on the other side of this, uh, you will need electric vehicles, which use an awful lot of rare earth elements, cobalt, uh, nickel, uh, graphite, and things of that nature. So it's not like we will go from one system where we're only using fossil fuels to another system where we're not using anything. It's just that the, the energy mix will shift. And ironically, when it comes to hydroelectric power, one of the great fights that the Canadian government has fought for years, and luckily has finally been ultimately successful, is to have hydropower classified as a renewable energy source all over the United States, because there were a variety of states which did not see hydropower as something that was renewable. So I think the first thing when we look at our energy system is to be honest about where we are, honest about the time trajectory of where it is that we need to go. And the oil sands is a big part of the mix. And it's something where the United States needs energy. I mean, the irony of the Biden administration, uh, which said that uh, we would like to import critical minerals from abroad. So is the choice that you would rather mine cobalt in the Congo, or would you rather mine cobalt in the United States? and do it to US standards environmentally and all the rest of it. So there, there are choices that need to be made, but it's not a choice of the cleaner, greener future not involving energy, any energy intensity versus what we have now. We have to say that there are trade-offs in this transition which need to be made and that lots of energy sources, including oil sands, will have a big role to play uh, over the short, medium, and even longer term as this transition plays out. I want to ask about the um, the issue of critical minerals. Um, it's been brought up. Eric, you brought it up. Um, Ian brought it up. Um, it was also brought up by Catherine. This is a um, issue of enor enormous importance for um, both Canada and the United States. Obviously, the future um, clean energy economy, um, solar and um, and wind, depend greatly on some of these um, critical um, strategic minerals. Um, and there are, as you, as you mentioned just earlier, um, Eric, trade-offs. Um, and, um, and you know, I know that, for example, Canada, there's a couple of Canadian companies now looking at um, deep sea mining, um, which has some opposition from environmental groups because of the impacts um, on the seafloor. Um, so let's see if we can maybe, if you could touch on this issue, because obviously um, there are limited locales for these critical um, strategic minerals. Um, obviously, the U.S. is a um, is a source. Canada has some of these strategic minerals. 
but oftentimes it requires Canadian and U.S. companies to go abroad. Um, and how do we reconcile some of those challenges from, from an environmental standpoint, uh, maintaining all, um, our environmental standards that we um, try to adhere at at home? So we'd love to get some perspectives um, on this issue, because obviously it's, it's one that is going to grow in importance as we start to look towards moving to decarbonize our respective economies. So deep sea mining, uh, for one thing, I'm skeptical about the economics around that, even if you put aside the, 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 the very potentially significant environmental issues that have to be managed in that. Uh, the economics of, of trying to do that just don't seem to work at the, at the present time. And so one of the good things that's come out of the process since the US and Canada started their critical minerals dialogue in 2017 is there is a comprehensive mapping of where the resources are and how and, and, and essentially their accessibility. So this is what I mentioned in my prepared remarks around we need to start thinking about how do we get financing in place in order to get these projects developed in North America that's the number one. And when you go abroad, there needs to be uh, third-party verification, ESG, uh, and, uh, and, and other metrics that are made available so that you can show if I'm mining lithium in Bolivia, that I'm doing it to the best environmental standards uh, in order for that to, uh, to play out. But there's also an awful lot of lithium in Nevada that, uh, are in the form of claystones. And so there's a big opportunity to create jobs and economic opportunity in some of these harder hit mining towns in Nevada as well. And so it's a matter, as President Biden has said, of being clear about uh, good relations with First Nations, good relations with, uh, uh, with uh, local environmental groups and applying the best in class standards to, uh, uh, to these particular processes. Yeah, and do you have any um, any uh, uh, parting uh, comments regarding strategic uh, minerals? Sure, Richard. Just to add on the fact that you know this is a space that we're working very actively on the uh, on the business outreach elements of our bilateral uh, action plan, and uh, we and part of our role is really to you know keep in keep in close uh, coordination with Natural Resources Canada and ICED. Uh, and also to work with stakeholders to make sure that th there's an understanding of what the opportunities are as we look at different elements of the supply chain and, determ and determining how from a supply chain security perspective, uh, from a business development perspective, what are the deals that make the most sense so that we've got the access and we've got reliability uh, in these and these resources that are going to be of utmost importance. We've actually got an event tomorrow, uh, a, a roundtable that we've put together with uh, with NRCAN and, and I said bringing stakeholders together. And there's a, a, a reasonably consistent stream of activities to make sure that uh, the opportunities are being made aware. And again, as, as U.S. and Canadian companies are engaged, bringing their best practices to this type of work. We had a, um, a question, Eric, and maybe you can take take this on um, by one of our um, participants um, in the forum about the Canadian commercial relationship with Colombia. Um, obviously, um, the focus of this forum has been U.S.-Canada, but um, Canada has also been very active um, um, in the broader hemispheric relationships um, with countries in Latin America and um, Obviously, um, both countries are committed 
to um, revitalize, revitalizing the Latin American economies post-COVID. So would appreciate um, your perspective on that on that front. Sure. There's a so there's a Canada-Colombia free trade agreement. Uh, this has been an important uh, relationship uh, for Canada in Latin America. Uh, obviously, coming out of uh, coming out of COVID, there will be an important uh, opportunity to look at how do you drive more investment into markets such as Colombia. Uh, Canada is active there, particularly in the mining space, but there are are others as well. And you know, I think Colombia is a bit of an underappreciated market that I think companies need to deal with. I had a recent meeting with someone who has developed a very interesting company out of the uh, the Ruta NA infrastructure in Medellin. And so there's a great interesting burgeoning tech sector in Colombia. So uh, I think it's a relationship which perhaps hasn't been as closely um, uh, prioritized as, as it necessarily needs to be. But coming out of COVID, I think uh, Colombia would be uh, a good partner with whom to take those advantages from the Canada-Colombia free trade agreement and to, uh, to amplify them very significantly. Um, if we could turn to the Arctic, um, it was mentioned a couple times as, as part of the um, um, earlier uh, presentations. Um, obviously, the U.S. And, and Canada have a strategic interest there, um, as does Russia. Um, um, what can you say about the growing bilateral trade and investment um, relationship in the, in the context of the Arctic Circle and future opportunities, as well as security risks? Uh, maybe Ian and, and Eric, if you want to take that on. Sure, I can start. Uh, just to note that it is it was a specific uh, point of discussion in the development of the roadmap. And so while Department of Commerce has some niche issues that are associated with supporting the Arctic dialogue, uh, one piece that we are looking at is business development. And so working closely with our Canadian counterparts to understand what the opportunities are and making sure that we're connecting interested U.S. businesses to, uh, to leverage those opportunities appropriately is something that we'll continue to work on. So I think it's a space that's going to be uh, evolving. Um, there are, um, again, there are a number of players active, active within the U.S. government and the, and the Arctic development space. So again, this will, be, this will be an area of focus for a number of us for some time. The U.S. and Canada are both Arctic nations, and through the Arctic Council, it's very important that they uh, work together on trying to uh, responsibly develop infrastructure in the region. I think um, if you look at the, the the great work of the Woodrow Wilson Center Polar Institute, uh, they've done a lot of interesting things around keeping track of projects that are ongoing in the Arctic region. And when I, I look at what's happening in the Canadian North, I think there's a real opportunity to, to perhaps step up infrastructure development uh, in the region and uh, to look at even things such as providing uh, infrastructure and security in the event of, uh, that uh, that the use of the Northwest Passage becomes more significant, because that's a long way between major supply depots and, uh, and emergency services and things of that nature. So the Arctic is changing, but we also 
must keep in mind that we need to do this uh, in close cooperation with the people who actually live in the Arctic and to look at ways that we can both uh, improve their economic opportunities and to work on things such as uh, reducing the cost of food. I mean, when, when a tomato costs $8 to buy in a Callaway, you know that there's space to to look at how do we reduce the cost of food. So some of the innovations about uh, smaller greenhouses and other, uh, and other projects to, to grow more food locally is something that is important. But this is a, a big area where I think both from a security perspective and also from uh, in terms of economic interconnection is something which is uh, really important for Canada, the US and other stakeholders in the Arctic to work on. Eric, thank you so much. And Ian, I, I want at this point, I think we're going we're gonna to transition to our final um, uh, presentation for the day. But I want to thank um, Ian, um, Saunders, um, Eric Miller, Colin Robertson, and Kirsten uh, Stewart for their um, presentations uh, and participation in this panel. Um, and uh, we will now turn to Scotty Greenwood, um, President and CEO of the Canadian American Business Council. Um, and um, so take it away. Thanks, Richard. Thanks everyone who has uh, joined us, not only for the great keynotes, but the discussion as well that just happened. And thank you very much to our panelists. Um, fascinating discussion, um, comments uh, and perspectives, not just on security, national defense and trade, but of course, where we all see ourselves going as united partners in a global uh, landscape. So we're going to take the conversation even further um, as we look to conclude uh, with a great speaker. Uh, I just want to remind everyone, if you don't already know, that uh, Southern California has over 350 Canadian companies that employ thousands of res re residents. And of course, it's a testament to our deep friendship that uh, these amazing relationships are going on. Um, in my virtual check-ins with all our Congress members uh, that represent through uh, our territory here in uh, Southern California, uh, we know that we're hearing that all the Congress members are missing our visitors, our business people, our entrepreneurs, and they're really looking forward to that reopening of the borders on both sides uh, now that our folks are not only getting vaccinated but also are having never stopped that essential travel are now looking to really enhance the business landscape in that economic recovery and of course scotty greenwood mary scott greenwood scotty to all of us, of course, uh, is the Chief Executive Officer of the Canadian American Business Council. She's also the Managing Director and Founding Partner of Crestview Strategy US, a former American diplomat to Canada and a frequent media commentator and public speaker. Scotty serves as a business and public policy advocate, as well as a communications expert and political strategist to Fortune 500 companies, trade associations, and nonprofit organizations. But more importantly, from my point of view, she is known is a great friend to Canada and friend of Canada and a friend of our consulate and has done immense work in this very regard and on this very topic about what it means to have a healthy cross-border 
inclusive trade on a minute by minute basis for our two countries. So without further ado, Scotty, I'm sorry we can't have you here in Southern California with us, of course. So we're looking forward to that. And I'm sure you'll be mentioning that whole aspect of travel and freedom to do so. Over to you, Scotty. Thanks. Thank you so much, Zaid. Thank you for your leadership. Uh, You are doing a phenomenal job representing Canada in the United States. Um, And thank you to the Institute of the Americas and your partners for organizing today's event. I have enjoyed the discussion. And I see that there are a number of friends tuned in, so it's great to be with you. It's great to go last so that I can have the final rebuttal. As an old college debater, I always like that. Um, I would really love to be in La Jolla this morning or any morning. (laughs) It's one of my favorite places on earth. Between La Jolla and maybe Kitimat, British Columbia, uh, it's a close call. Uh, But before I get started, I hope you'll just allow me just to roll a short uh, little animation, which really describes the organization that I represent, the Canadian American Business Council. It'll go fast, I promise. So if we could roll the video and then I'll come back on the other side. Who is the Canadian American Business Council? The CABC is the leading advocate for Canadian-American cross-border relations. While we share quite a long border, 5,500 miles of it, our relationship goes beyond physical landmarks. It is woven into the very fabric of our history, and more importantly, our shared future. The cornerstone of that future? Our integrated economy the envy of nations around the world. $2 billion traded every day, employing millions between our two countries in industries such as manufacturing, agriculture, and energy. Canada, the leading supplier of all forms of energy to the U.S. Hydroelectricity, natural gas, and oil, to name a few. And it goes both ways. Our bilateral energy trade reached $110 billion in 2019. But our energy partnership extends beyond trade with a joint commitment to sustainability and ongoing efforts for a clean energy future, prioritizing the shared stewardship of our bountiful natural resources. Beyond energy, we also share one of the world's largest investment relationships at close to $900 billion. And in agriculture, Canada is the largest market for the United States, accounting for over 15% of AG exports. This mutually beneficial relationship, seen in the ongoing construction of the Gordie Howe International Bridge, connecting the world's most prosperous trade corridor of Detroit, Michigan and Windsor, Ontario. 2020 certainly upended many aspects of the flow of people, goods and commerce, Pre-pandemic, nearly 400,000 people crossing our common border each day. However, with a ban on non-essential travel in place, that stream reduced to a trickle. But the CABC is leading the way for a return to normalcy, setting the table for innovative conversations between business leaders and policymakers, working to reopen the border safely to re-energize our tourism industries finding solutions during the economic downturn, and to position us for greater success in the future for our shared prosperity. Because as the guardian of the U.S.-Canada relationship, we at the CABC know that we can tackle all of the world's greatest health, economic, and political challenges better together.
Alrighty. Well, you've asked me to speak here today about how the American-Canadian relationship is working nowadays uh, beyond the video. You've even given me a title, so let me make sure I have this right. Partners, the United States and Canada. Well, how to put this. Since we are being hosted by institutions of higher learning, let me borrow from Irving Goffman. We need to analyze the frame of that title because it contains an assumption that has become a cultural, culturally determined definition of our reality. And I'm here to tell you that our reality has changed. Canada and the United States may indeed be partners. Of course we are. Our proximity imposes it. But a partnership can be anything from the keen ardor of an all-in, fully engaged collaboration to something more rote. I believe we are drifting towards rote. Let me say it another day. I have another way, or another day. I have devoted a significant piece of my career, as Zabe told you, to advancing the proposition that Canada and the United States are exemplars of the term, quote, special relationship that we are stout and tireless allies, fellow tribes, culturally aligned collaborators that have one another's backs. The foundational principle of the organization I lead, you just saw it in the video, is that Canada and the United States stand together on common ground and have a relationship that the world envies. It's my business to study, reflect upon that relationship and advocate for it. Uh, as Zabe said, I at one point was a U.S. diplomat in Canada. I have had the pleasure of watching our economies integrate over decades to the point that in some ways they are a single system. I consider myself, I hope I can say this, to be among the champions of that relationship, not unlike the distinguished speakers we have heard from all day today so far. Certainly, I believe and I preach that when whatever our two countries do, we're better together. All of which is to say that if I, among all people, am questioning the very notion that Canada and the United States are still fully engaged, enthusiastic partners, then something has changed. It is not something we are naturally inclined to say, and it's not something that I have said publicly before, yet I'm saying it, and I'll tell you why. I think we have to stop taking refuge in out-of-date references. We need to re-examine old narratives and come up with new ones that are suited to today's reality. Let's start with one of the oldest and often repeated and greatest accepted truths of all, that Canada and the United States are the best friends and the closest allies. Canadians, after all, can disappear into a crowd of Americans, at least if they avoid saying out and about in public. In each other's countries, Canadians and Americans are probably the world's most relaxed tourists. We have a common language, common cultural references, our military and political business leaders are utterly comfortable with each other. Canadian soldiers fought alongside American troops in both world wars and nearly every conflict since. We have a common aerospace defense organization, NORAD. We haven't attacked one another in, militarily in more than two centuries. We share secrets and technologies and supply chains. We are in each other's daily news cycle and weather maps, but look closer. And the lackluster wrote of some of the joint declarations, uh, look at what they become, look when they become more obvious, sorry, closer look when they become more obvious. To an awful lot of Canadians and Americans on the left and on the right, the success of our integrated economies now smacks of globalization. What was once prized is now rejected by large swaths of the population. 
For the past four years, the U.S. had an isolationist president who denounced what he called globalism. When he threatened to tear up NAFTA, the trade agreement that binds our economies, the most successful economic partnership in the history of the world, millions of Americans cheered. They cheered again when Trump declared that Canadian steel and aluminum were threats to American national security and placed tariffs on them. For that and for all sorts of other reasons, I expect you can imagine, President Trump was just about universally loathed in Canada. The fact that a majority of Americans voted against him in 2016 and the math of the Electoral College didn't matter. He was the American president and he represented America and he magnified the ugly aspects of the American polity that our chattering classes, perhaps including me, have strived for decades to portray as marginal. As everyone now understands, they are not marginal. In any case, those years merely confirmed what a lot of Canadians believed about America. They began earnestly looking elsewhere in the world for commonality. They talked about finding other allies. The Canadian government sought out other trade agreements. Who could blame them? As Americans said goodbye to Barack Obama and inaugurated Donald Trump, Canadians elected and then re-elected Justin Trudeau, a leader who believes in gender and racial diversity in his own cabinet, describes himself as a feminist, preaches reconciliation with Indigenous and First Nations, something particularly important as we think about what we're learning in recent weeks. Now add to that the pandemic, which of necessity imposed a separation of American and Canadian populaces that hasn't been seen since, well, since ever. Suddenly, to use a favorite Canadian phrase, we were two solitudes. Essential business continued, but the border gates swung shut and were padlocked, which is how they remain to this day, as I speak. Most Americans, meaning populations not near the northern border or dependent on tourism, didn't necessarily notice at first, but Canadians did. And polling consistently suggests that they approve of continued separation. Think about that. A majority of Canadians now prefer to keep Americans out and not just because of the pandemic. The truth is the past four years seem to give Canadians permission to speak aloud what many of them used to only say in private. They don't really like their neighbors to the South all that much. Or as Prime Minister Chrétien used to joke about Americans, you're our best friend. And then he added, whether we like it or not. Anyone who doesn't think that sentiment hasn't affected Canadian policy doesn't really, I would submit, no Canada. Canadians will almost certainly be deeply skeptical about America's next foreign war. They will view economic cooperation as a necessity, but will reward politicians who promise to keep America at arm's length. Closest allies and best friends? It's a lovely idea, but it is no longer quite as rock solid as we would like to think, as I would like to think. So let me dwell a few more moments here on the era of the past few years. Another great received truth about the Canada-US relationship is that it ebbs and flows in direct proportion to the personal relationship between the president and the prime minister. Remember Brian Mulroney and Ronald Reagan? They were close. And the relationship prospered under their stewardship. They sang When Irish Eyes Are Smiling Together on stage at the so-called Shamrock Summit of 1985, and they negotiated the first Canada-U.S. free trade agreement, which Reagan fast-tracked. They truly were friends. Mulroney was one of the very few invited to deliver a eulogy at Reagan's state funeral and Mrs. Reagan's, I believe, an honor craved by every Republican here in D.C. And I recall touring the private residence at the Reagan Library with former Ambassador Gary Dewar, 
And there were pictures of the Reagans and the Mulroneys together all through that private residence. It was really poignant. During their years, their years in power, everyone talked about how much better the relationship was than it had been under, say, Richard Nixon, who famously called Justin Trudeau's father, Pierre, that expletive deleted, or JFK, who also was, you know, was a sailor and talked like a sailor, uh, famously uh, called John Diefenbaker an expletive deleted. But let's look dispassionately at the relationship since the day, since those days. Trump didn't really love Prime Minister Trudeau. He insulted him publicly. And yet under Trump, the U.S. signed and ratified the updated version of the NAFTA, the USMCA, which we've been talking about today. Prime Minister Stephen Harper, President Barack Obama were, let's say, aloof. Yet their administrations greatly furthered regulatory cooperation. They signed the Beyond the Border, a landmark joint security perimeter. Obama did have that short-term bromance, remember that, with Prime Minister Trudeau? But that didn't secure the Keystone XL pipeline extension for Canada. And in fact, President Joe Biden, another Trudeau admirer, just killed it on the first day of office. On the evidence, personal relationships between the leaders are just that. Relevant in the old days, perhaps, but ultimately, and nowadays, countries act in their own economic and political self-interest. To, to crib Charles de Gaulle, nations don't have friends, they have interests. While I'm at it, let me debunk another axiomatic truth. Our famously open, famously unguarded, famously long shared border, a 5,500 mile long, cooperatively managed open door, there's nothing like it anywhere. That was true once. That was true when we made that video that I just showed. But here and now, I'd characterize it more as a stubborn legend. As I mentioned earlier, the land border remains closed to all but essential traffic. Air traffic, different story. The fact is, Canadians have been free from day one during the pandemic to fly into the U.S. destination for any reason or no reason at all. They were, they were and remain exempted from White House directives, denying entry to much of the world's population. Canadians have been able to vacation here, visit family in the U.S., and continue traveling to properties they own. Many of them were fully vaccinated in the U.S., free of charge, while Canada was still waiting for vaccines. American air travelers, meanwhile, have been barred from landing in Canada since March of last year. Recently, Ottawa decided to relax its quarantine rules for fully vaccinated travelers, but only those with a Canadian passport or permanent residency. Let me put this even more bluntly. Fully vaccinated Canadians are free to visit the U.S. and may now return home unhindered. Fully vaccinated Americans are unwelcome in Canada. What does that tell you? It tells me that Canadian voters like it that way. We are in fact seeing, what we are in fact seeing is a breakdown of the cooperation, the cooperative border management that has defined our relationship for decades. And patience is wearing thin in Washington. If Canada decides next month to extend the land border closure once again, there's a good chance that the White House will just open America's side unilaterally. This of course will make the inequity all the more glaring. Americans don't like to be treated unfairly, and it's increasingly clear that that's what's happening. You know, we were told for decades, and I believed it for a long time, that Canadians treasure the bilateral relationship while at the same time the U.S. takes Canada for granted. I would suggest, respectfully, that the reverse is now true. I've already covered contemporary Canadian attitudes towards Americans, and maybe that's rich coming from me since I'm an American, 
Let's look at the obverse side of the coin. My organization was fairly involved behind the scenes on the NAFTA renegotiation. Let me tell you why congressional Democrats voted overwhelmingly in favor of what was, after all, a Trump economic package, even as they prepared to impeach him. It wasn't simply because of Canada's famous charm offensive, which absolutely happened. It was also because businesses were horrified at the idea of tearing up NAFTA and retreating behind a tariff wall. We made it clear to Congress that costing jobs and prosperity are unacceptable, and both sides of the political aisle listened. No, Americans no longer take the special relationship such as it is for granted. I would submit that lately, perhaps Canadians do. Maybe none of the Canadians on this call today, uh, but in general. Some pretty important people in Washington, Chuck Schumer, Amy Klobuchar, Patty Murray, Brian Higgins, Elise Stefanik are noticing. But look, I understand it is not useful for me to identify challenges without suggesting solutions. So let me propose a few. Some of them have already actually been discussed today. So I'm gonna highlight, underscore, and put an exclamation point behind them. We need to help each other and meaningfully. Instead of complaining about the inevitable by American clauses and American spending packages, and I don't mean to minimize concerns about that, Canada could help its own case by throwing in with the United States on something big and meaningful. I'm talking about the Innovation and Competition Act, formerly known as Endless Frontiers. It's a huge bipartisan effort to compete with Chinese statism. It sinks more than $100 billion into artificial intelligence, semiconductors, quantum computing, biotechnology, advanced communications. China has denounced it as an example of Cold War prejudice, which in itself should tell you something. It's encouraging to see Canada already working closely with the United States to counter China's effective mo monopoly on rare and critical minerals. I give Canada's former ambassador, my good friend David McNaughton, a lot of credit for getting this cooperation going. I would add, and Canada is continuing doubling down on that. I would add though that a lot more needs to be done and done more quickly. Electric vehicles will displace the internal combustion fleet and those vehicles will need batteries and those batteries will require critical minerals. You know, I don't need to tell you, Canada that hasn't been bruised by China's leadership, joining with the US to counter China would send a good message and it would amplify our alliance. It would certainly replenish some of the goodwill that has dissipated in the last several years. Or Canada could even more formally lock arms with Washington on energy policy, as Eric Miller articulated just a few moments ago. Canada already feeds the U.S. grid with renewable green hydroelectric power and expertise on carbon capture. Imagine the potential for real change if they were combined with America's market power, capital, and ingenuity. Talk about inspiring the world. The MOU that Minister O'Regan and Secretary Granholm signed last week is a step in the right direction. Let's try to ensure that those words become meaningful action. And let's hope that the spirit of cooperation that's represented in that MOU is also replicated in how the U.S. and Canada resolve existing challenges about the Michigan dispute with Enbridge on its pipeline that moves underneath the Straits of Mackinac. We also need to entrench the things that we have long taken for granted. Really, let us stop arguing endlessly about softwood lumber and craft a permanent political agreement. And it should be obvious that our shared real estate makes a coordinated environmental policy essential. 
NORAD should be expanded to counter new threats. Those Russian hackers who clogged up the East Coast fuel supply bring the combined full force of our military and cyber experts to bear. I could go on, and I will if we have time during the question period, but my salient point is this. Let's not keep up old pretenses. Let's be mercilessly practical. Let's do what is in our shared best interest. We have nurtured and promoted tropes about ourselves that sound old and hackneyed to anyone who studies the relationship. We need a new, less sentimental analogy. We are not different branches of the same family tree or bickering siblings. We might not even be terrible, spe terribly special to one another. Or maybe we're closer than I thought. Ian Sanders today didn't talk about Canada and the United States as best friends, but he did say that Canada is strategic and important. Maybe we are being more realistic. If you think about it, President Kennedy's assertions to the Canadian Parliament 50 years ago remain objective truth. Economics has made us partners. Necessity has made us allies. We really don't need a group hug. We really need to take a clear-eyed view of what has worked, decide what's in our common interest, and pursue it. Earlier I said that my organization's mantra is that whatever we do, we do better together. So everything I've said, notwithstanding, that is quite simply true. So let me ask you this. Why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we do it together? So thank you so much for the invitation, Richard and Zabe, and I look forward to the dialogue. Thank you, Scotty. I want to start by um, asking you, Scotty, about the um, Canadian American Business Council. You've got some very influential members um, that have a lot of clout in both countries. Um, you talked about um, the need to um, rethink um, the way we look at the, at the Canadian-American relationship. Uh, what role can the Canadian-American Business Council play in beginning to shape that new um, dialogue and to change the paradigm? Well, thanks, Richard. I think one of the things that civil society can do, that private sector corporations can do, that, that everybody can do, is... Um, speak clearly about how how good it is that we cooperate together. And so what, what our members can do and what we do do hopefully is by engaging in that dialogue and by speaking clearly, um, we provide some political cover, I hope, um, that allows governments to kind of do the right thing. Um, you know, everybody, there's an old saying in Washington, I can't remember which president it was, but he was meeting with a group of lobbyists and he said, okay, you've convinced me. Now go out there and make me do it. <laughs> so there's something that the business community, again, civil society can do by not just agreeing behind closed doors, but also getting out there in the public domain in places like today and speaking fearlessly and, and not just waiting for governments to tell us what we need to think, but you know, provi providing with a little leadership ourselves. One topic that's been sort of, we've tiptoed around um, today in the discussions, but really hasn't been dealt with directly is the um, interrelationship of communities uh, along the U.S.-Canadian border. And I think it's close to 90% of Canada's population is within 100 miles of the U.S. border, mostly for climate reasons more than anything else. But obviously, in a COVID context, this has had a, a huge impact on both sides of the border with um, communities on the U.S. side of the border that have been hurt um, because of the lack of tourism and, and commerce. Similarly, Canada has, has faced those, those same impacts. From your perspective um, and from your organization's um, 
policy work. Um, what do you see as the path forward? Um, obviously, I know the Biden administration has stepped up its efforts for vaccine um, um, relief with Canada. Canada beginning is, is starting to ramp up its vaccines, but we're still we still have closed borders and tourism has really been uh, stymied. Um, so, love to get your perspectives on this on this issue. Sure. Well, I mean, vaccine deployment uh, and utilization is is one, two, and three, right? It, you know, everybody needs to get vaccinated and both countries are working awfully hard to get there. Uh, and, and so that's the first thing, you've got to get your own population protected. Um, and then quickly thereafter, uh, and I talked about this a little bit in my remarks, there, there are Northern border politicians in the US that are saying, if, a fully, if, if an American is fully vaccinated, why wouldn't they be allowed to go to Canada? Um, and they're also saying, importantly, you know, in these border communities, they, we have summer people, we call them summer people, like in northern Vermont, Lake Montemagog. It's a lake that is 30 miles long, 20 miles of the lake are in the eastern townships of Quebec, 10 miles of the lake are in Vermont. Canadians own property on this side, and they haven't been down to their property for two years. And so now they'll, you know, if the U.S. border will open, um, or they will be allowed to come, right? If Canada and the United States decide after July 21st to reciprocally open the border. Canadians will be able to come across to their places and Americans will be able to go to their places. Congressman John LaFalse was the uh, original co-founder of the Northern Border Caucus. And when he retired, he's from Buffalo, New York. And when he retired, his wife said, you know, I've always wanted a house at Crystal Beach, which happens to be in Fort Erie, Ontario. They, I mean, he has blown up my phone. When do I get to go to my house? I promise I'll stay there. Am I allowed to travel? So I think uh, it will be really important um, to get people going back and forth again, um, to get that inner connectivity going again. Um, Richard, I'll just close with this. Uh, Chris Sands of the Woodrow Wilson Center, Canada Institute, and I have been uh, recording episodes of a podcast that we're going to launch um, shortly in the next few days, and it's called Canusa Street. And Canusa Street, C-A-N-U-S-A, the name of it came from uh, a friend of ours in Northern Vermont who lives right on the border. And there's a street called Church Street, but because half of it's in Canada and half of it is in uh, Stanford, Quebec and half of it's in Vermont, all the locals call it Canusa Street because everybody knows. So anyway, we've got a podcast uh, called Canusa Street and we'll be, we'll be talking about these things. But the, the, you know, the short form is uh, we need to treat each other in the same way, which is if you're fully vaccinated, you're safe. We need to get our populations vaccinated. In Vermont, I think it's over 80%. So it would be safe even if somebody, want, you know, there's a risk, a lower risk of somebody unvaccinated entering your country. Um, if, if, you're, if your population's vaccinated, you'd be okay. The other thing where the U.S. is hesitating and they, sh I think, should not hesitate is to figure out um, a certification uh, to, to demonstrate that Americans are good to travel. Even if President Biden doesn't want to require a vaccine passport to allow people to come into the U.S., Americans want to travel, and governments, Canada and many other governments in the world, are going to say, okay, you got to prove to us uh, that, that you're safe. And uh, I think the U.S. government is going to have to collaborate more than it seems to be willing to do so far. So far, the answer is we'll get ICAO to issue the standard or we'll rely on the private sector. So I think I think the, there's work on both sides that needs to be done, but the U.S. is going to have to do it a little bit. 
have one final question before we, we close our session. Uh, Catherine Bard, in her comments, spoke about the roadmap that um, President Biden and Prime Minister Trudeau um, signed and committed to back in February. It's a comprehensive roadmap, as, as Catherine mentioned, that covers not only our strategic security interests, but also trade and commerce and cooperation on climate, climate change, climate action. Um, what role it does the um, Canadian American Business Council have in the context of the implementation um, of that roadmap and supporting both the Canadian government and the American government to realize the potential of that partnership? Well, one of the things we do um, is, is constantly um, hold people accountable to it, to the commitments. Because, you know, Washington, D.C. might be the capital of attention deficit disorder. You know, we focus on one thing today, something else the next day, and we, we've got a lot of other issues. So one of the things that private sector communities, the American Business Council and others do is say, don't forget about the roadmap. It's really important. We've got a milestone coming up. We need to think about it. And then also provide feedback to the agencies on how to make it operational and how to um, really advance the goals in a practical way. So th those are the things that, that we do um, on, on the various different aspects of that roadmap. But as I said, I think that roadmap is really important and meaningful. But I also think that this, uh, this you know, what's known colloquially as the anti-China bill is a giant opportunity for Canada and for Canadian businesses to jump in and be part of that with the United States to develop domestic industry uh, or North American domestic industry to counter China, whether it's semiconductors, AI, um, or any of those other big categories. Well, Scotty, thank you so much for your for your perspectives, remarks, and, and, and all the work that you're doing with the Canadian American Business Council. Really applaud all your efforts to promote the, the partnership and to make it work. At this point, I want to uh, turn it, um, it over, back over to Arwen um, um, Woodmere Bobbitt uh, from the um, consulate um, in Los Angeles, the Canadian consulate in Los Angeles, that will provide us some reflective um, um, thoughts about today's discussion. And um, so take it away, Arwen. Thanks so much, Richard. And very briefly, what an incredible conversation. And thank you to all of our speakers. We've heard that we've managed to deepen our relationship even further through an, the excellent co cooperation between our two countries during the pandemic over the past 16 months. Despite instability and uncertainty and an unprecedented but successful border closure to keep our citizens safe on both sides of the border while maintaining the flow of trade. We heard about the roadmap for renewed partnership, which provides a concrete path forward on the full breadth of common priorities, focusing on building back better and recovering from the pandemic equitably and environmentally, preserving integrated supply chains and addressing critical supply chain resilience, working together internationally. We heard about the opportunities that integration and shared labor unions present, and our speakers spoke eloquently about the importance of a mutually recognized vaccine passport and the promise that cooperation on critical minerals has for both of our economies going forward into the future. COVID did reveal economic and social disparities and has highlighted the need to focus on those groups that have been most severely affected by the pandemic due to historical inequities and structural barriers. We heard as well about some amazing innovations and opportunities that have been prompted by the pandemic, which has democratized content creation, a technological leapfrogging, so to speak, that has had important positive effects on content creation. We of course heard about softwood lumber, cybersecurity, and the importance of the critical mineral strategy, 
And we did hear specifically about the Buy America executive order that, though being compliant with U.S. law, raises questions about whether that really is the way the U.S. should be situating itself in the North America market. Rather, perhaps the U.S. should be focusing on how to best use our collective competitive advantage and the compelling argument that Canada really does have a deeper, more broad economic relationship with the U.S. than any other country. And we're clearly, clearly stronger together. It was clear to me from listening to our speakers and the very astute, intelligent questions asked by the audience members that we are starting to build back better from an incredibly privileged bilateral position and that with our shared priorities and values and when we maintain a laser focus on the mutual benefits of working together, we are in an enviable place in the world. Richard, thank you and thanks to the Institute for including the consulate in this fantastic event today. Over to you for closing remarks. Arlen, thank you so much. I just, uh, thank you so much for those closing uh, remarks. Um, I wanna thank all of the participants for joining us today. I also wanna thank, um, again, our, our uh, funding partner, the Burnham Foundation that made this uh, forum possible, as well as our program partners, the UCLA Canadian Studies Program, the Maple Business Council of Southern California, the California Chamber of Commerce, and NASCO. So thank you so much for your participation, and we look forward to seeing you at uh, future um, Institute programs. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.